You're listening to Girls Gone Canon, covering his dark materials. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon Reads His Dark Materials, Episode 25, The Amber Spyglass, Chapters 29 through 31. I am one of your hosts, Eliana. And I am another one of your hosts, Chloe. Oh, it is. It's getting grim out here, getting glib. We are on 29 to 31, Battle on the Plain, Clouded Mountain, and Authority's End of the Amber Spyglass. A lot happens today. If you have not read these three chapters, I think it's time to sign off. I think we're at the point where if you have not read chapters 29 through 31, get out of here, take a trip. Have a nice fall. Oh. You know? Yeah, you know, I mean, like it's springtime, but it's not like we're spoiling. Maybe take a pal with you, oh you know? Take a pal with you if you go on a nice trip. Yeah. Anytime soon. Down. Down under. Oh my gosh. Down under, yes. Head to Australia. Go there. Uh, that's where Coulter went. Find Finding Nemo. Yeah, she went to go find Nemo. <laughs> <laughs> Someday, a woman appears. P. Sherman. For oh my God. Being. Maybe we should it's do. Mrs. We Coulter. should just see the Finding Nemo. No, I'm joking. <laughs> but the reason why Chloe says if you have not read up to these chapters is because we are going to, of course, cover spoilers going up to chapters 29 through 31, but only up until that point. Though again, we are so close to the end of this book and this trilogy. However, again, we are going to leave spoilers from after chapters 31 and. From the books of dust and novellas for the most part for our discussion which happens after we cover these chapters yes i love our discussion i like getting dusty hey there are two characters in this chapter that at uh, these chapters here that are actually getting so dusty Indeed. three even you know Everyone. Uh, and some say three is a crowd but three love to tango in these three chapters when you get to the discussion, we will talk about the end of the Amber Spyglass. Maybe, maybe LaBelle Sauvage, maybe the Secret Commonwealth. Of course, the novellas, right? The outer novellas, which we have covered most of them up to date at our Patreon, patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon. If you are a patron in the Stranger tier and above, you get bonus episodes. But we did actually recently release one, thanks to patrons for the public, which was Lee Scoresby's once upon a time in the north we did we did and we are going to see lee scoresby and yorick briefly reunite this episode which ugh, amazing my okay, heart spoilers no, <laughs> i assume people have read <laughs> they're not reading along <laughs> as we speak um, this is not an audiobook i gotta catch up oh my god what if they say it before oh i'm there but uh, there is allegedly another novella coming out soon in may and so we are going to once again release as eventually a hazard materials patreon episode likely covering that in may yeah, uh, it, it sounds really cool, right? It's like the, uh, what, the Imaginarium something something? I'm I a forgot. really bad fan right now. I forgot. I've got a lot going on. A lot we have going a lot on. Uh, happening. <laughs> yeah, you know, we covered recently some other ones like The Collectors, which The Collectors is coming out later this year, I believe, kind of alongside the show uh, as a new novella, a new print. But... He is putting out this new one, and I'm such a bad fan right now. I don't even remember the name. I know I've retweeted it recently. Something about Imaginarium something something something. 
it's got some snippets. It's like lantern slides. You get some info on dust, some stuff about Serafina, actually, a little bit from her POV, it sounds like, or something. I gotta look it up. If you got the link, drop it. Uh, Maybe I won't look it up by our next episode at the end of the month, because it's April and we have two episodes this month. While you have to wait till May for a Patreon novella, uh, you get two HDMs in April, too. Yes, and part of that is, of course, because, um, again, everyone, thank you so much for your graciousness as we had to shuffle episodes around this past March. This this March uh, really kicked my ass. I was like Caesar, you know, getting stabbed over and over again. Yeah, March sucks. <laughs> it was really hard for me, <laughs> but yeah. there are things to look forward to coming this April. For example, we are going to be continuing our His Dark Materials rewatch. I am having such a blast every week. Our friend Pete has been hosting a rewatch at our Discord. Patrons and the Thunder tier and above have access to a private Discord server where we sometimes host events like this or our monthly brunch slash happy hour, which we haven't yet decided on April's date, but stay tuned for that on Patreon. This this has been so fun. Pete is doing a weekly rewatch. He also recently told us, he was like, this is kind of hard. You guys do this all the time? And I'm like, oh, Pete, you're so sweet. He's... He made, like, slideshows with a breakdown, snippets of the scenes, photos, audio. He has audio in his PowerPoints. Mm -hmm. This guy's got it going on. Uh, But Pete is not only so talented at hosting this rewatch, which we just finished up Series 1 weekly, he is so generous and gracious that he has spread this rewatch to his other fellow friends (laughs) that attended Series 1 of his rewatch, and now they get to do all, I mean, have so much fun, too. with pete uh so our i'm gonna put the schedule up on patreon we'll put a post out telling you when where how to get on with discord and if you're in that thunder tier and above you know how to get hooked up and come hang out with all of us weekly for a couple hour discussion on the episode of the week we are taking a little break until april 16th episode one of series two city of magpies is going to be hosted by our friend cassidy who was on a couple months ago for Amber Spyglass. You may remember him. April 30th, Pete takes back the throne. We take another little week off for Ice and Firecon there. Pete is going to do The Cave. May 7th, uh, Series 2, Episode 3, we're going to do Theft, and our friend Janice is going to host that one. She's quite a poet, so I definitely try to come to that one. That one sounds fun. And, uh, of course, May 14th, Tower of Angels, our friend Jimmy is going to be hosting And we will definitely let you know the other three hosts in our next episode at the end of the month. We'll keep you updated so you can get ready for those ones at Discord, too. Yeah. And, again, like, Pete has done such a great job with this, and I think it's great to see other people stepping up to do it. And it's been really inspiring for us in terms of, like, I mean, we might follow this sort of format. As you said, again, this is not a binding contract. This might kind of be what we do for when House of the Dragon comes out. Yeah, it could be fun to do some little meetups based on that and have everyone volunteer and host uh, the the episode they want to chat about. I'd be excited for that, and I'd even do one. I'd even come back and put a little work in on that garden. You know what I'm saying? Maybe. Maybe. Uh, But I also think, to that manner, it's cool to see the style come out, right? Like, every single person I know that I just said hosting an episode is going to have a different style of how they want to have a discussion about media, which... I think that's cool. I think it'll I be know. fun. I think it's just cool. Yeah. I'm excited. I'm excited to see how everyone does it and approaches it. And 
it's just very it's just very cool so thank you everyone for being (laughs) involved in all of that and most of them are grown yes so that was probably an astute thing to say they are they've all got settled demons you know Oh my god. Oh my god. That's the worst part about this ending. We haven't chosen our demons yet. Oh my god. <gasps> well, they haven't settled yet. Right? Technically. They ha- when do our demons settle? The know. last episode? A long time ago, probably for me. I'm very oh my old. God. <laughs> yeah, but so, what's kind of actually fun, you were saying that we restart this April 16th. If I'm not mistaken, that's Easter weekend. So, hmm. This feels very pointed. Oh my god, we rise again. <laughs> we rise again with series two. I love that this is leading up to like, it'll be summer, we'll finish it up, you know, it'll be June, everyone can have kind of a summer vacay and come back in mm-hmm. the autumn for HDM series three. Let's cry and get high. For the fall. Mm, the fall of... <laughs> Man. The fall of girl. Yeah. <laughs> Girls got pumpkin spice. I got pumpkin dust. Wait, that just sounds like drugs. Oh, I was, I was thinking right. it sounded like something you put on your uh, pumpkin spice latte. Pumpkin dust. Pumpkin spice must flow. <laughs> you should do that. You should make oh, yeah. that drink. We should work on that. We should I make would. that recipe. <sighs> sounds delicious. Yeah, I would drink it. It actually does. Well, let's get into chapter 29. We've come this far. We can't turn back now. Let's talk about battle on the plane. Each man is in his specter's power until the arrival of that hour when his humanity awake. William Blake. So, this is obviously not our first William Blake heading for one of the chapters. And this one, though, does come from William Blake's uh, And Did Those Feet in Ancient Time, which is more commonly known. Like, it it was turned into this hymn uh, called Jerusalem. But and did those feet in ancient time is this like larger epic poem fanfic that Blake wrote about kind of John Milton, uh, which is called Milton, a poem in two books. People love writing, you know, erotic friend this fiction about each other. Yeah. Us gassing each other up. That's all it is. I mean, that's what we do every week. Why is that so wrong, Eliana? <laughs> I guess you up every fiction. week. Uh, Our podcast is erotic friend fiction. Oh my fiction. gosh. But- I, didn't, I didn't know this. I did not know that he wrote this, though. Did he wrote an erotic friend fiction? I don't even, I don't no. think they, like, coincided in timing. <laughs> he and Milton. Oh, but... they coincided. Oh, my gosh. Uh, their atoms met one another later on. But anyways, it, it does really tie together, right, a lot uh, with this story's inspirations. I mean, I, I kind of wonder if initially, way back then, Pullman got maybe the name for specters from this, right? Not only that, as well as this idea of coming of age to be able to see the specters. You can see that in these lines here. And, I mean, Lyra and Will begin to start seeing specters this chapter. I also really love, like, this line of, you know, each man is in his specter's power. And I think that speaks to a little of that succumbing to when the specters devour the demons. But there's, I think, another way of reading that line in the context of this chapter, relating to it, where a man can be as powerful as a specter when we see the ghosts fighting against them. Mm. Which is so great to look at, like, last couple chapters when, you know, you could really see the yearning that Lee and Joppery can't be of a real help. They're just wisps of air, right? Vapors, they so are. to speak. They're just the vapors in the air and... and almost feels powerless right so for them to actually take back that power here and be able to fight like that that's really nice yeah because they want to help as we see 
all they want to do is be able to fix it for their kids. Yeah, they want to protect their kids. You know, Lee and his adopted daughter. There's one moment, I forgot to call it out here, where he calls Lyra towards the end. Like, my, like something my dear child. And I'm like, he calls her my child. That's his daughter. <laughs> oh, the sacrifices parents make in these few chapters. Yeah. And then, of course, Joppery, but... Yeah. Yeah, he's there, too. Yeah. He's there, too. And his father-in-law, Yorick, is here, too. <laughs> Lyra and Will wake up from, like, a very beautiful sleep at the start of this chapter, yeah. and then they're like, oh, no, wait, everything's still horrible. We have to snap back to reality. Oh, there, there goes Rabbit. Just kidding. It's their demons, though. <laughs> there goes. their demons. And they do need to seek their demons. Uh, Lyra reads the alethiometer, which I love this. It once was very easy, and she used to feel confident reading it, but now it's starting to feel harder, laborious even. I was what could it mean? so stressed when I first read those lines, like, back then. I first well, was a magical I was like, girl. That's, that's bullshit. I was like, I'm stressed. What does it mean? <laughs> it's just like when Yusagi would like try to transform and not be able to transform. Yeah, that was stressful. That's the same stress that I felt as a kid. I was like, what do you mean? It's not... Yeah, and they do that at the beginning of, like, every new season, right before she gets her new power-up, and... Yeah, you have to get through the big... Well, yeah. I guess that's literally the, the theme here at hand, right? Mm -hmm. Like, Lyra's got a power-up right now. She's got to go get a life, a.k.a. Pan. Yeah, she uh, does. And they've come to the right place in this tunnel that they're in, right? They, they can cut out finally. It's just Will has to make the cut. Their ghost buddies, Lee and Will's dad, are still with them, and Lee says that it's not going to be long now when Lyra sees Yorick tell him, And when the battle's over, there'll be all the time in the world to drift along the wind, find the atoms that used to be Hester and my mother in the Sagelands, and my sweethearts, all my sweethearts, Lyra child, you rest when this is done, you hear, life is good, and death is over. That was still Midwest, but you know it's better than nothing. Still, <laughs> I'm sorry, Eliana, It was much, much smoother than the first four tries. I mean, I think that <laughs> I'm gonna actually put all everyone. If you want to hear the first four tries, I will. I will let you all hear that. You can find it on our bloopers channel where I post our bloopers. Yep, get on that Discord, y'all. <laughs> Y'all. Uh, it's really funny because the first thing in like my first run through of the chapters I had for a note was actually this. And the first thing I said was in my note that I took in my Kindle, okay, I'm fucking sobbing. Now she's crying with um, laughter, but. Yeah, now I'm <laughs> laughing. That is literally what I was going to say. I'm like, now I'm fucking sobbing for another reason. So thanks for that, Eliana. Uh, that did make it a lot better because it sucks. This sucks. This is like the saddest shit in this book. Uh, can we just... T have you guys read this book? It's so fucking sad. Okay, so this and later when he finally... Like when they cut out and they cut out to somewhere that looks like a prairie so he could be home and free. That is just... God bless that chapter. My God. Uh, the Sagelands, right? That's conservation lands in Washington. Those are native wildlife areas, lands on the reservations of the Colville and Yakama nations, the Cascade Mountains, the Okanagan Mountain, the Tunk Valley, Waterville Plateau, just beautiful. Uh, I, I think there's that great connection, right, that we talked about during the Subtle Knife chapters with the Lantern Slide. 
we learn a little bit more about Lee's mother's ring that Joppery uses Lee's mother's ring to summon him, right? And Lee's like, what the fuck? How'd you get this? He saw a ring of silver and turquoise, a Navajo design. He saw it clearly and he recognized it as his own mother's. I, I think there's such a strong connection of those lands with his mom that we don't get the full story of. And also there's something really beautiful and magical, right? About that wildlife there and about some of the history on that land that makes you think like, I don't know, his connection with Serafina, right? His girlfriend. One of his many sweethearts. One of his many sweethearts. Just, I was thinking that. I was like, he's going to float around like Adams and make sure and check in on her and make sure she's okay and make sure Lyra's okay and float around in the air. Particles of the universe finally at place. So beautiful. We can finally be at rest when we die. Thanks, Lyra. Uh, yeah, it makes you think of the witch's magic, though. You know, like, it's magic in a different form. This book has so much magic in it, even if it's, like in a way, dispelling mythical magics and corruption in them. But there is so much magic in it and science and horror. I do love that lantern slide. John Perry and the turquoise ring. How did he get hold of it? You could tell a story about the ring and everything that happened to it since it left Lee Scoresby's mother's finger. And you could tell a story about Lee himself and recount his entire history from boyhood to the moment he sat beside the little hut on the flooded banks of the Yenisei, and saw the shaman's fist open to disclose the well-loved thing that he'd turned and turned round and round, his mother's fingers so long ago. The storylines diverge and move a very long way apart, and come together, right now, and something happens when they touch, that something would lead Lee to his death. But what happened to the ring? It must be around, somewhere. This never comes back. Maybe books of dust maybe a discussion we don't know but it doesn't come back right so where's the ring it might come back it might not i, I feel like philip pullman really loves you know his little like mysteries or like just leaving things out there yeah you know and i and i like that i like that ambiguity but as you said right it's so sad but i i i'm happy for lee and I'm happy at this idea that his atoms are going to spread apart and he's going to be with all of the people he loves eventually, you know, including his mother and, and all of his sweethearts <laughs> and Hester and everyone else. And maybe one day York, too. It's actually a little bit like when York devours Lee. Anyway. Except technically York was like not freeing Lee, you know, his body in a nice way. He was technically, you know, freeing his spirit to hell. So maybe oh York's gosh. bad boyfriend. Oh my god, just no. Kidding. No, why would I'm you so say sorry. that? Oh no, god. they're Adams, I'm a contrarian. They're atoms mingled together in a different way. It's in like a physical anyway. digestive way. That's like lit we have literally had this discussion. Anyways. Put your friend fiction away right now. <laughs> my your erotic friend this fiction. This is not a this is like a I don't different hear kind about of their atoms. What is this like? God. Is that called Vor or something? I don't know. Anyways, Lyra wants to hug him, wants to hug Lee, but she literally cannot. So <laughs> she gazes at him with passion and brilliance in her eyes and inspires him with that, giving him courage. The Galavespians ride on Lyra and Bill's shoulders, and their lives are almost over. It's cold oh, in their oh, heart. Oh. They're weak and stiff. This is so sad also. They would return to the world of the dead as ghosts, but they both silently vowed to each other that they would stay with the children as long as they can, and up and up they climb, the heartbeat leading them, her wings beginning to drag. Running water is echoing in the cave, and finally they reach the rock that they must cut through, and Lyra then turns to the harpy. She tells the harpy that, to thank her, she would like to give the harpy a name instead of just, 
living around like no name, just as King Yorick had given her a name. She's like, I'm your dad now too. <laughs> just like Yorick was to her. And Lyra names her Gracious Wings. It's not like the best name, but it is alright. And Gracious Wings tells her that she will see her again someday. Lyra says that when she does, she knows that she will see Gracious Wings and so she will not be afraid of dying. Goodbye, Gracious Wings, till I die. She embraced the harpy, hugging her tightly, kissing her on both cheeks. I love that so much, actually. I, I do want to say, look, Aliana, how many things have you been good at naming in your life? It's just, you like, not as good as Silver right Tongue, alright? Silver Tongue was, like, an A, like, S-tier name. I mean... Gracious Wings is, like, a B. Like that, though. Yeah. And Lyra's, like, you know, like, two years old, okay? She's yeah. not... Yorick's she's a got lot a lot on her mind right now. She has, She's exhausted, you know? Yeah. She's not sharp on her feet right now as she usually is. She's probably she hungry. Like a snack, yeah. a break. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I can't think when I haven't eaten. That, that's apparent. I had to eat before this because I was like, there's no fucking way. She needs there's a Klondike no bar. Whew, I need to take five, girl. Uh, I love, though, that Lyra names her. And, and as Lyra, who was so lost, right, like who just felt like an absolute horror about having to be a Belacqua after what Asriel did to Roger, right? And that shame. And then Coulter, having that be the other half of her. Mm. That, like, fucking shame. That stark Targaryen energy emanating <laughs> through her. Like, what do I do? No, I'm just kidding. That's the wrong series. Uh, I think there's just so much in the power of a name, right? And meaning that a name holds and that no name the Harpy had been awful and horrible up till now just because, like, she never knew she was allowed... She she had never been granted to be allowed not to be, right? She had never been able to. Mm-hmm. And now, having that name, it's very... Actually, it does have some some sort of biblicalness to it, right? Because you have, like, God's gracious wings on his wings, on Jesus's gracious wings. Mm. And the harpies were kind of an exploitative part of the authority's control, right? Like, they were basically fucking misdirected and just were told, like, yeah, just torture everyone. That's what you do. That's all you're good for. And they were just negged. To the underworld. Uh, Where they now, negged everyone else a cycle of negging. Yeah, it's honestly, that's literally what negging is all about. <sighs> now that Gracious Wings has this name, they might actually be able to do something good, right? Like, that might empower them to do something good. And people believing you can't do something because of your name. You know, like, having no name. Uh, we talk a lot about bastardry in A Song of Ice and Fire, right? And what that kind of does to some of the characters that have lived in that shadow. And, like, that's all the harpies lived with, like, being nothing, coming from nothing. And now she has something, something more powerful than the authorities control, right? Like, she has a chance. Free will. Free him. Yeah, absolutely. Everything that you said, right, and what you were saying of, like, having a name and the powers of that and being able to sort of just like redefine like who she is right before she was kind of nothing right that's how she was thought of no name now she gets to be gracious wings and uh not only is it like as you're saying she was tasked to this by the authority they were kind of like you know horrible creatures to everyone else they were harpies right now it gives a sort of angelicness like an angels of death but in a positive way to them so and I think there's something really great in that contrast to Metatron, who's an actual angel that we see as like horrifyingly horrible in the last yeah. chapter in this. And also you have Marisa doing 
similar in that, like, not in giving herself a new name necessarily, but in her betrayal of Metatron, right, and her slow seduction and betrayal of him, she's able to kind of reclaim the parts of her, as he said, you know, he'll say as we get to it, you are a cesspit of moral filth. Uh, And hearing the words and her knowing, like, inside her heart, like, I'm awful, I'm terrible, but you know what? He has no clue who I really am. I was able to fool him about what's in my heart. Mm -hmm. Uh, That gives people the power to reclaim, like, a part of themselves they had lost or that had been taken from them along the way. So it's great to see that at the front with the harpy and at the end with Marisa and Asriel kind of realizing they have a chance to do something good. And it, to be something. Yeah. And it's interesting that you liken that to Metatron, right? He had a name before as a man, and as a man mm-hmm. had not as much power as Enoch. But then Metatron, that's something different, being called Metatron versus... That's a good name there, eh? I, it, it, still sounds, name. it still sounds like a robot to me, but you know what? It's a metal band to me. Is I'm it? Like, Metatron, yo, I'm going to see them Just like Saturday. Issa he- Issa. Oh, we're going to rage. Yeah. yeah. Issa Hatra. Yeah. <sighs> that's like... I don't know. I kind of liked their first album. (laughs) Well. Chevalier is there, right? They they die in, but they're still there. They're hanging in there. Uh, Chevalier asks if they've reached Asriel's Republic, and Lyra's like, well, we're close. Chevalier says there is a fortress at the mountaintop that Asriel is defending from an unknown enemy. Lyra and Will must find their demons, and the Galavespians will help them to do so. He kind of also implies, he's like, whether it's me or someone else, our people will get you there. Because I'm dying. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, well, it's fun. It's fun for him. I mean, it's fine. He's just going to, what, start back where he was like a few hours ago when he dies, right? Like, he was just there like 24 hours ago, 48 hours God, ago. Hades is the worst game. <laughs> he's, like, he's just going to do it all over again. It's going to be <sighs> sick. <laughs> He's like, I'm Me glad for six months this year. Yeah, right. I'm, I bet he's like, I'm really glad I went on that journey. Uh, I'm really about to benefit from that very soon. <laughs> he's like, well, time to start level grinding. Yeah, right. So I hope there's a skill tree when I get there. Oh my god. <laughs> they keep emphasizing like this mountaintop that Azrael's fortress is on, and I feel like general fortresses come up a lot in the Bible, but the mountaintop for some reason kind of struck me. Um, just because there's like, I think a famous sermon from Jesus, right? Known as like the sermon on the Mount, on the mountaintop. A lot of the important things happened on mountaintops, like Moses getting the 10 commandments and stuff in the Bible. But anyway, Mm -hmm. Jesus gives the sermon on the Mount. Like it's, it's really famous. He gives a lot of teachings, including like how to do the, our father and like the whole thing of blessed are the meek and blessed are the blah, who shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. And we're about to tear down the kingdom of heaven you know it's interesting you say that because then you get that idea of like i mean very much so your mount olympus is versus Mm. the earth right yeah uh and hades being beneath all that as we talk about some of our mythology and that's so interesting because like i just get that very visceral vision of someone going to the highest mountaintop they can find in earth and talking to the gods and so now i'm thinking we just did that righteous gemstones episode with our dire wolf city girls and that was a good time we'll have to relink it i know we linked it for our last sam episode church changes a lot these days the words change eliana and i were really offended that you know when we didn't go to church for so many years and now they want to change the script on us yeah after learning it for 20 something years yeah 
now I look 21 like years idiot. because I'm 22. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, I do look like an idiot. I do. I'll never and learn. I'm like, I know uh, about God. <laughs> but is that how they learn? Did someone climb all the way to the highest mountaintop and get their ear real up there and be like, authority, please. Is the authority here? We need to change some words. We got some betrayers in our midst. <sighs> yep. 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 I don't know. It's an interesting communication. Telephone. Game of telephone. Telephone. <sighs> well, as opposed to telephones, Will is taking out a knife and saying he's ready. He gazes into his ghost daddy's eyes, knowing that they don't have much longer. And Will thinks he would have loved to reunite with also his father here uh, and his along with his dad, and then begins to get wrapped up in his thoughts, and Lyra stops him because she could tell his emotions were beginning to affect the knife. And he lets go of the knife, which ends up, like, suspended, hanging, like, stuck in the air in front of them, and Lyra tells him to look at her. In the ghost light, he saw her bright hair, her firm, set mouth, her candid eyes. He felt the warmth of her breath. He caught the friendly scent of her flesh. The knife came loose. I'll try again, he said. I, I do like this. It's subtle, but kind of shows us uh, not just a subtle knife. Uh, oh my god. <laughs> but Lyra has Will, you know, focus on her this time and is like, look at me, instead of like him thinking of his mother, showing, I think, starting the transference of emotions of like where love lies, you know, his heart lies in his character. Yeah, some, a l- little bit of that sexy mommy transference. Yeah, yeah, I could see that. I mean, a little know, bit. They do Young call love her, is blossoming here. They do call her Eve, mother of us all. You know? Yeah, I mean, supple, young, yep. blossoming. Um, you know, a little sexy. A little sexy. <laughs> oh my god. Uh, you can just tell. Like, she's like, Will, Look don't break your knife, buddy. Yeah, I mean, it would actually be really bad if he did at this moment. That would have... Yeah, no, really, they really <laughs> <Actually>. need... <laughs> for once, we really, really, really need you not to. Yeah. Will focuses for a moment and he lets his mind flow within the knife, finding the seam, making the cut. At first, the first thing they hear is noise, right? They don't even see anything, but then the light strikes next and it's dazzling and light, but the pounding and explosions and gunfire and shouts go over all of it. It's far louder. The ghosts are the first to recover their senses. Both of them are soldiers and experienced in battle and a little disconnected, right? Uh, and Lyra and Will watch in fear and amazement as rockets blast in the air with rocket metal showering them all. Angels, witches, fighting, swooping, galavespians on dragonflies, attacking machines. We got action. Action, people. There's a lot of, I mean, all of these three chapters are just like action and... Pow! It Pow. is, it is. Action and like heartbreak. And in a bit like we're gonna see like all the forces of the galavespians emerge and i just love that moment i just want to say like i love that moment everyone on the dragonflies it seems super cool very dramatic and i love it lee is ready to go but john tells him to wait to cut another window to see what's happening they watch the attacking force withdraw through the second window and a squadron of enemy machines fly off the west and retreat the kingdom's forces on the ground pull back as well but there seems to be no reason for it Suddenly, Will notices movement among the ghosts. The reason for the retreat has appeared. Spectres, Will and Lyra are able to 
almost see them maybe for the first time shouting out and uh confusing the soldiers through the window they watch a soldier from lyra's world then get attacked and john perry turns to them telling them to let him and the rest of the ghosts out because they can also see the specters and they can fight them you know when it comes to almost being able to see the specters for lyra and Will, what does it mean <laughs> Ah, I love this. With nothing to fear, the ghosts battle the specters in an invisible wrestling match that the kids can't quite see fully. Will gets himself to the middle of all of it. He's selling popcorn. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, His knife is in hand, and he's trying to keep the specters away from them. Lyra is feeling a little helpless, right? A little downtrodden. She doesn't really have anything to fight with, but she stays close to him with Selmachia on her shoulders. First of all, again, I... I don't know whoever's gonna I'm so glad Bad Wolf and Sony just hooked up a little bit because like we're on the way out for HDM so Sony mm-hmm. can't fuck it up too much with any big wig decisions you know <laughs> what I mean so like we just got our bag and we're getting out girls we're getting out we got our bag we're getting out we are gonna get this we are gonna get the Galavespian army Eliana I hope so on those dragonflies we are gonna see the ghosts fighting and shit it is gonna be wild um this is just gonna be a wild badass scene there's so much in the end of this book that i just keep thinking they're gonna adapt and i'm like wow we're gonna get that i deserve that i do deserve Uh, that i've waited a long ass time and i like almost like never got this you know i had a really hard eight seasons of another show i deserve a really really good adaptation of something thank you thank you Uh, they even have like a blueprint right here you know tells them how it's supposed to go uh well it is finished that's true yep (laughs) even the sequels are almost finished i when i first read it i remember being like yo what the ghosts are fighting because i thought they were gonna cut open and it was over right like i thought they were gonna try to help and be like no we're fading we're melting uh, but it makes so much sense that because of, like, and this is something that we obviously talk about, like, spatial dimensionally speaking. Spatial dimensionally speaking, you know. Quantum <laughs> physically speaking. Uh, you know, yeah, in science yeah. terms this here. Is, this is science. There's a lot of universes, right? Mm-hmm. And there are is only one universe where bitches die to. Mm-hmm. So, like, Joppery, Lee, Roger... And a bunch of other people, and like other people from other worlds, and Mulefa even, they all ended up in one place. But they all came from a lot of places, which I guess that's a metaphor probably too for something. Uh, But they are the only beings they finally meet there. So, I don't know, now that they're dead, of course they're the only ones that can fight the other ghosty things. Right? Like, men have not been able to fight them. Man has suffered at the hands of specters even though man created them. Only when a man has lost all can they fight it. And, you know, they're all on the same plane here, these ghosties. And it's interesting, because when you think of, like, spatial dimensions and how many different universes we've seen so far, and, you know, there's millions out there, I'm sure, in this this world of Pullman's, it's a spectrum, right? Oh, spect. No, the Latin word Rum? spectrum. Oh. A spectrum. Specters. Ooh. Yeah, I mean, that's where specter comes from. So, like, life is a spectrum of just, like, being alive or not being alive and where you are on that spectrum. Absolutely, absolutely. And the shimmers of light kind of in the air. Interesting, interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But also, like, yeah, I mean, it makes sense, you know? It absolutely makes sense for the ghost to be able to fight specters. I mean, after all, sometimes specter is a synonym for ghost. 
at times. And I don't know if they're supposed to be maybe like the Holy Ghost when it comes to the Trinity or no, but like the, they're, they're the spirit part of the human, right? Their souls are already free floating around somewhere in the other. So they don't have to worry about them being consumed. I, uh, it's above the clouds for Lee, which we'll find out at the end of the last chapter of this episode. But I'm also like now, like, I guess the angels are kind of similar, but maybe the angels are more like demons and dust. So that's why it was harder for them but the angel said that they could take care of this but i don't know whatever but yes it's brilliantly it's great that the ghosts could do it exciting times exciting times and like they can join the battle and fight alongside their children absolutely absolutely hey that's something uh and it's you know the the bummer about the specters is like even if the specters aren't attacking you we realize they're attacking someone. <laughs> they could be attacking something else, like your yeah. demon. Yep. And you could still get horrible nausea, which is what Lyra and Will get. First, they're looking out at the fortress, at the hills. They're made of black basalt, and they're watching people repair battlements. And then suddenly comes the specter nausea, and she knew what it was at once, though she had never felt it before. And it told her two things. First, she must have grown up enough now to become vulnerable to the specters. Whoa! Whoa. What does it mean? And secondly, <laughs> Pan must be somewhere close by. Whoa. <gasps> Where are they? Close. I'm coming, close Pan. By. And I think it's also interesting because, like, we've only ever witnessed the effect of specters affecting other people. But this is, I think, one of the first times we're getting a firsthand account of it, right? Because every time anyone else kind of comes up against a specter, they they lose. So what are they going to be able to tell you about what it was like getting <laughs> your soul eaten? They can't, right? So this is uh, our first time getting a firsthand account of what it feels like to be touched by the specters and have them try to consume your soul. Good times. Also, the nausea of it, it's actually it feels reminiscent to how it's described when an unwanted other person touches your demon. That's very true. That is... Yeah, I think it's a great way to explain kind of what we've seen from other people that have had that happen, right? Mm -hmm. Lyra, obviously, that's happened to in the series, but I never really thought about, like, that's a great explanation to finally find out. That's what it feels like. Yeah. Feels bad, man. Ugh. Feels bad, man, that JPEG. Uh, she uh, cries uh. out for Will, who suddenly also experiences the exact same feeling, bending over and oh, trying no. not to be sick, and then she begins to cry out for Pan. The sky fills with storms on top of the gunshots. Also, the sun is still shining, so a lot of things are going on here. It makes everything very vivid, especially the lightning. Will and Lyra cling to each other through the cracks of thunder and look up, seeing an insane sight. Witches. You got... Rudiscotti, Reina Miti, and a half a dozen other clans carrying torches of flaring pitch that they drop over the enemy. And some of the witches fly into the specters, but many of the specters had dodged to the earth, and a flight of angels emerges and set up to meet the witches. And then their wings blaze, and they scream as they tumble into the air. Ah, this is, honestly, I'm going to be honest, Marvel <laughs> needs to pay Philip Pullman, because this is... A, the portals scene from Endgame and B, yeah. better. It's just better. I want to see this, IRL. I want to see them all tumbling out from different universes to fight. I deserve this. Yeah. I mean, the angels can do that, I think. They can just, like, make the windows slow. Good for them. Yeah. And 
I never thought about it until now, but like the witches are just a great addition to this battle specifically. So are the bears because they're technically not human. But um, you know, if they've, especially if the witches have been able to retain and then pass on the knowledge of like keep your demons far away from the battle, <laughs> right? Because that makes them therefore very useful and strategic in a specter-filled battlefield. Yeah, it's. It's not like it's good to have some defense there because that seems like a pretty killer. That's Eight. a pretty killer enemy to just unleash, man. Yeah. Yikes. Ah. Uh, so all throughout this, Lyra and Will are being soaked to the skin. Lyra's shouting for Pan. The Galavespians are keeping lookout, giving them direction, but they've been faltering, losing strength, and now Lyra's holding Selmachia in her hands to keep her upright. Tialis still scans around, calling out anything they need to be warned of, but his voice is losing power. He's losing steam. <sighs> so sad. <laughs> They're so seeking sad. their fellow clan colors. Electric blue, red, yellow, but the colors have faded and those bodies have already gone to the world of the dead. <sighs> then comes a movement in the sky. A, a weird, squiddly-looking <laughs> plane appears in the, in the sky. A, a craft of sorts. An intention craft of sorts, but the children, like, they see it out of the corner of their eye and they're like, we don't fucking care. We just don't have time. Because uh, suddenly they feel that nausea again and they know that their demons are once more in danger and they stumble forward through the war to go find them. And I love that. That transition is amazing, right? That, like, Coulter's arrived. Uh, and, and I love the transition as we go into the chapter where we get Coulter arriving on her own terms. But here... For the kids, especially for Lyra, who usually would be like, whoa, what a freaky ship. <laughs> you know, she'd be into that. This means yeah. nothing to them. They have to do for themselves, which neither of them have gotten to do their entire life, right? But they have to find themselves to survive right now. They have to save their demons and one another. This weird squid aircraft is gonna have to wait. Sorry, mom. Or insects. You know, that is like the metaphor, right? Like, I have to fix myself, mommy. You gotta yeah, go. that's Good true. Luck. I mean, she spent so much time, you know, trying to help everyone else. She saved, like, all the people ever. <laughs> yeah. Well, we were in the underworld before, last chapter, but now let's go all the way to the Clouded Mountain. Chapter 30. We open with, far off the imperial heaven, extended wide, in circuit, undetermined, square or round, with opal towers and battlements adorned of living sapphire. John Milton. What? Yeah. John, John Milton? Johnny Ann? John Milton? Jojo? Jojo what? Jojo Milmil? -Mil? <laughs> uh, Milton? A poem in two books? Jerusalem? Uh, so I feel like I don't really need to explain where these lines come from. I think it's pretty straightforward. Uh, it's Paradise Lost. Everyone? They're kind of important. Pretty significant, you know? Uh, to the creation of this story, but there is a lot of a significance here um, in these lines to what happens in this part of the epic poem and how it correlates to this part of the story. This line comes towards the end of book two of Paradise Lost, and around this time in the book slash not book epic poem, I don't know if you're allowed to call them books. I don't know. Satan is crossing a bridge above chaos, capital C, who together with night rules the void between heaven and hell, which is also the abyss, which, uh, if you all remember, was at one point called the womb of nature, I think, in when they quoted Paradise Lost earlier on. And 
Many Milton scholars have said that chaos and night stand opposed to, or, or are diametrically in a way opposed to God, um, almost as much as hell is, but not as much as hell, especially in terms of this nothingness being opposite of God's love and kindness. But many, many other scholars, such as, for example, John Rubrick and Regina Schwartz and others, take on different views, such as chaos actually being a part of God's creative power, or chaos being inherent to order, or chaos slash the abyss actually more of as a neutral entity in Paradise Lost, uh, respectively. And um, more views. There are many more views. I am not a Milton scholar. These people like probably have doctorates in this, and have spent like years, decades of their life like really thinking about this. I have a podcast. Um, <laughs> in Paradise Lost, though, chaos does ally with Satan to help Satan reach Earth, which is, I think, kind of interesting, right? Considering how Azrael, who's this, like, Milton satanic figure, ventures to the abyss here and uses it to fell Metatron with Marisa. Perhaps Marisa could also... I, I'm wondering, you know, there's a lot of different ways, of course, to think of Marisa. Very complex figure, um, but could be thought of as either the embodiment... Is Marisa the embodiment of chaos or night, right? Like this idea of the womb of nature and perhaps her grave, which is, again, a line from Paradise Lost, right? Or mm -hmm. is she a figure that together with Azrael, right? We should be seeing them as one figure together, both encompass this idea of Satan, not just Azrael. I really love the idea of Marisa and kind of embodying chaos, too, with that same line, because She's pretty chaotic. Uh, especially for these, yeah, A, chaotic, like that girl, real chaotic, but B, uh, of course, we know many mythologies borrow from each other or even follow similar, you know, similar canon, so to say. And in Greek mythology, chaos, you know, the goddess, she is the lower atmosphere that surrounds the earth, the invisible air and the gloom of fog and mist, which in these next two chapters, Marisa is very much the embodiment of chaos. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. She's chilling in chaos. <laughs> Absolutely. And as a tangent, we think of chaos differently nowadays, right? As opposed to, as you pointed out, right? Like the original meaning of the word in ancient Greek. And I just want to plug Jason Reynolds' award-winning, literally award-winning, like fantastic child-slash-young-adult novelist who... Like, he did this fantastic talk about chaos as this gap, right? Like, that being what it was, right? This gap, this abyss. Um, and talking about how, like, adults can continue to relate and help young people and children and, like, being vulnerable, right? And anyways, I'll, 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 what's it called? I'll link it. It has nothing to do with this, but one of the best talks I've ever seen. That's great. I gotta check that out. That's I'll, I'll send it to you. When I think of, like, fantastically done public speaking i think of this so i'll send it to you <laughs> and like metaphorically speaking that's interesting to think about too because a lot of the times when you hear chaos assigned to a person it's a negative connotation yeah you know he, he, so reclaiming chaos yeah oh my god yeah he does that and he starts out with like the story of like him and his mom watching some like trash like daytime talk show it's actually really funny it's very well done i love it so the Clouded Mountain. 
Mrs. Coulter and her demon are alone in the cockpit of the intention craft. They are hurtling along in the bad weather, avoiding the flying beings that are fighting in the air, staying clear of the land below. This is pretty chaotic here, too. She keeps her lights off to stay incognito, control shift N, uh, for landing, and begins to climb, ignoring everything flying by her, her demon leaping around to look left and right, and call out to her constantly. Whoa, whoa, whoa. He's yeah. calling out to her constantly. He fucking talks all the time. Uh, yeah. I, I, I mean, there have been like three to four mentions in this last book alone as we slow read it. He's not mute. He just doesn't have dialogue that we can hear, which is also interesting when you think about like on a talking to yourself level. Like, I don't always talk to myself, but when I do, you know, it's just a light murmur, a mumble, you know, so maybe it's just nothing that we've been able to hear. He just, you know, I think he leaves his things mostly just to say to Marisa, she's a very private person, and, um, I mean, they're manning this ship together, which is very cool, or maybe it's like, you know, if you don't got nothing nice to say, don't say nothing at all, as Thumper and Bambi said, and that monkey probably (laughs) never has anything nice to say. Yeah, I mean, it's Marisa's demon. I am also taken now just by, like, the end of the last chapter versus the beginning of this chapter, thinking that the kids were like, whatever, don't know, don't care, have other shit to do, like, survive. And Marisa is same way. She's like, my destiny is this. I am not, I could not stop for anything, can't stop for the shit in the air, the witches, the nothing. I I really love just that very set in their kind of what they're setting out to do going on. Very nice, very nice. They are very set. They are intentional. Intention crafting. Intention crafting this story. Intentionally crafting right up my ass, Eliana. Uh, So Coulter's dazzled by the mountain, right? Yes, the clouded one, that one. It reminds her of another abominable heresy whose author languished in the dungeons of the CCD. They believed and suggested there were seven or eight dimensions instead of the three familiar ones, even constructing a model as to how they worked, which had been burned and removed. Folds within folds, corners and edges, both containing and being contained. Its inside was everywhere, and its outside was everywhere else. That's the TARDIS, first of all. I've watched Doctor Who, that's the TARDIS. I've watched one and a half episodes, and now I know that meme of... What, what is it, Chloe? The Bigger str- on the inside? No, no, the stretched out, the hydrate, moisturize me. Oh, the moisturize me, yeah. yes, yes. Yes. Good job. Thank you. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm hip. One and a half episode. Wow. Wow. She is. That girl got out there. She went canon. So, besides the TARDIS, <laughs> it's also something from algebraic geometry. It's a Kalabi Yao manifold, uh, also known as Kalabi Yao space. It's mm. a particular type of manifold that has properties uh, like reachy flatness, yielding applications in theoretical physics particularly applicable in superstring theory, Eliana? Superstring theory. Uh, The extra dimensions of space-time are conjectured to take the form of a six-dimensional Kalabi-Yau manifold, which lead to the idea of mirror symmetry. Uh, Basically, they're shapes that satisfy a requirement of space for six unseen dimensions of Hmm. string theory. So some of them are smaller than what we can currently see, and they haven't been detected. And a big popular alternative to this to large extra dimensions, something that occurs in something called a brain world model is that the Kalabi Yao is large, but we are confined to a small subset on it, which basically intersects something called a D brain. Yada yada yada, a bunch of shit I don't currently really understand because I have you not need a studied. PhD. 
decades I, of uh, algebraic geometry is not for Chloe. Uh, but basically, higher dimensions are being explored with additional kind of ramifications for general relativity. And so there are a couple chapters that it made me think of, just even that there are like six huge folds in this theory. Made me think of Lyra reading the alethiometer. Without having uh-huh. to think about it, she found her fingers moving the hands to point to the helmet, the griffin, the crucible. It felt her mind settle into the right meanings like a complicated diagram in three dimensions. Interesting. Or, going back to the Galavespians, the lodestone resonator. When he talks about the lodestone resonator, he talks about quantum entanglement, as we've highlighted that two particles can exist that only have properties in common. So whatever happens to one happens to the other at the same moment, no matter how far apart they are. There's a way of taking a common lodestone and entangling its particles and then splitting it into two so both parts resonate together. And then there's a chapter, and this isn't yet a spoiler, but it is a line that we have not read yet this far. But Mary talks about kind of a Rorschach test, inkblot test. And in Mary's world, they had a picture that looked at first like random dots of color. But that, when you looked at it in a certain way, seemed to advance into three dimensions. And there in front of the paper would be a tree or a face or something else surprisingly solid that wasn't there before. So there's something interesting about the idea of the three different dimensions and folding them together. How can we entangle? I mean, the whole first book is spent talking about separating. Right? That's true. Trying to separate something that is one. So how do we separate that and rejoin it and have it be stronger than before? How do we join these worlds? Oh, interesting. Yeah, the joining of worlds. But also, I mean, like you said, right? Like this is just physics that people like aren't able to necessarily comprehend, right? That's why it needs to like all mm-hmm. be folded, can't be necessarily uh perceived and it, it, it's reminiscent of um how we were told that Brutus Scotty was like, yeah, okay, okay, I see these angels. And then the, the text tells us, no, she doesn't really. She doesn't really. <laughs> She's lying. <laughs> They're towers. They are towers of just, Aww. like, crazy folded things. It, like this, what you're saying, right? Mm-hmm. And um, different aspects of dimensions. That's crazy. And it's the same thing as, like, the lacquered, you know, glass, the amber spyglass, and Mary oh, holding it up and being yes. able to see the dust and not. And of course, it's Will being able to cut open the world by its mm-hmm. seam with that knife. Oh, and it's all of those through, things. Yeah, those fabrics, those folds all over. He's able to slice through the mm-hmm. folds. Well, it reminds me actually of another character that I'll talk about maybe in the discussion now. There's a little LaBelle Sauvage hanging around in this, this end of this book, now that I say it. There's yeah. a little LaBelle Sauvage action, you guys. You gotta read that one if you haven't. Hey, we covered that. Yeah, that one was that one's fine to read. Um, so the clouded mountain feels similar right to to those diagrams and that heresy that mrs colder had seen uh Mm -hmm. like there's a force field manipulating space to fold into one another and stretch and layer into galleries terraces chambers and colonies actually reminds me of another young adult children's novel around this time a wrinkle in time Mm. this idea of tesseracts Mm -hmm. but anyway it's also, you know, besides like on like that more sciencey level, on an artistic level, right, which is probably inspired by the science, very reminiscent of the drawings of M.C. Escher, or prints of M.C. Escher, which speaks, I think, again, really well to how the show interpreted 
this aspect of the story visually and has woven it into the rest of the seasons, right? Especially by incorporating it into the opening sequence and also like how they've portrayed Chitagatse. So really, really great visual interpretation. Yeah, I was really thinking about MC Escher when I was reading everything about that super string theory. I was like, oh, I get it. Visually, I get it because of MC Yeah, he's probably like into that. He was very into math, you know, math. <laughs> Art has a lot of math in it. I mean, yeah, like math is the devil. Uh, I will tell you, I hate math. You know, we're trying to do away with daylight savings in the U.S. apparently as a distraction from everyday politics uh, and like war and bombing people and shit that they do. So if they do that, now we just got to ban math. Yeah, I mean, you know, let's just go full Jonah Ryan. <laughs> but it's not Jonah like Ryan it is in everything though. Like everything is numbers, right? Like yeah. even down to like genetic code. Like everything can be translated into numbers numbers that are universal where words cannot always be and it's almost like you know unlocking these worlds for lyra and will and mary and coulter and Azrael. even yeah. all it took was a mathematical code they just had to find the right tool to use the right code experimental theology um but mm-hmm. again too dangerous Jonariah <laughs> <laughs> for president uh, absolutely not richard splat's my candidate anyways amen hallelujah <laughs> sister so Mrs. Coulter, upon seeing this, feels a strange exultation and also realizes how to land. The craft lurches and strains, but her demon helps her land, and they head toward the Mother of Pearl Radiance coming from the mountain. Everything looks very confusing, right? Because you have these infolded perspectives, of, again, the colonnade staircase and the facades, and Pullman does not strike me as someone who really likes H.P. Lovecraft. He doesn't strike me as a Lovecraft fan or aficionado, but... So I'm not saying that he's uh, inspired by this necessarily, but it does remind me personally of how some of the places in Lovecraftian literature and like how the Lovecraftian gods, right? Like the places where they live or are associated are described. They're comprised of like, it's called like non-Euclidean geometry. So like things that will drive you mad. That's how like what that is. That's so crazy because this is going to be such like... Them adapting this book is insane. This is going to be such a, like, almost like a hall of mirrors mindfuckery going on here with all of the spatial dimension talk. This is going to be very crazy to look at. I wonder if they're not going to do it exactly like that, right? They didn't do the specters as exactly in the book. We'll see. Yeah, I I think they will definitely do some. I mean, I just imagine everything having, like, a little 3D filter on it, but in real life, and a couple flickers here and there to make you go, oh, holy shit, this is just a big rock, not somebody projecting an entire beautiful palisade. Or will it be, like, inspired by, we we did see Metatron's cube portrayed on Mm -hmm. the computer, or something looking like that, so, I don't know. Yeah, we did. When I saw that, I flipped out. I was like, that's it, he's coming. hope he's a daddy that's all i want gosh so as marisa decides how the fuck to get in there she hears voices singing a palm and coming near a procession of angels carrying a litter and they see the intention craft and they stop she can see an angel in there uh indescribably aged not very easy to see enclosed by crystal glittering throwing light around she gets this awful impression of terrifying decrepitude, sunken wrinkles, trembling hands, mumbling mouth, roomy eyes. He gestures shakily at her craft, muttering to himself, howling in anguish, but the bearers ignore him, moving him along. I like how when Mrs. Coulter sees this, she's just like, oh, 
interesting, weird. And then she just like she just does not care about it. <laughs> She's like, look, I'm here to suck angel dick and save my daughter, and I'm almost out of angel dick to suck. <laughs> yeah, actually though, she's just like weird. <laughs> Moves on. <gasps> Man, these angels are crazy OP in this. I, I never really realized it, but like they can shapeshift, they can send people to the afterlife, they can turn people into angels. And I know there's the point that like you need legitimacy, right? Like, you can't just eat God. Right? Even if all the other angels are bigger <laughs> than God. I'm, I just don't get... They're all bigger than God. Why don't they just eat God? Anyways, but, like, you can't eat God. I get that because, you know, you need legitimacy. You need people to still believe in something and still, like, enslave themselves to your cause of religion. Uh, but also, these magnificent beings are following those dopes. And that is the point, right? Baruch and Balthamos aren't following the authority. You see that angels have rebelled. Angel rebellion is a big theme in this chapter. But I'm just telling you, it's like when the God Squad in season two of Righteous Gemstones realize that Kelvin is a pipsqueak and weak and they can like just sit on him. You know what I mean? Like It's like, damn, why don't they simply eat God? <laughs> well, I mean, it's like you said, right? I, it was Zephania. Like Baruch and Balthamas, they all realize, like, yeah. wait, but what if we did? Uh -huh. And I think it's like the ones who are carrying the litter. Not only are they like the ones who swore themselves to that old order and they refuse to question mm -hmm. or think about it, right? Like that would, I think, absolutely destroy their sense of self. And also, yeah. I think it might have to do with it's not that they're questioning or they refuse to question just like the Ancient of Days. I think it's because Metatron is real big and scary. He's clearly very, very powerful. And it's probably that he forces them not to, right? Um, you're talking about legitimacy, and I think it's maybe like Metatron setting that, and he mm -hmm. is telling everyone, you guys, we just got to protect, all right? You got to protect the Ancient of Days, keep them alive in that crystal thing, or I will eat you. Because, <laughs> I mean, he needs the Ancient of Days alive for his power to have legitimacy. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. And he is able to take more power this way, as we've seen. Yeah, until he isn't. We're getting there. Well, and like you said about the, the King's Guard, right? The, the ones that are sticking to order and duty there that are still guarding him, even though, you know, it's like, what's the fucking point? It It's not unlike the people that get hit by the specters, right? You're living half a life still. Yeah. And or that's part of it. Like, even the people here in heaven on the mountain, they, they live a fucked up shitty life, too. Yeah, they're not having a good time. They do not seem like they're having fun. <laughs> we can't have that free will. <laughs> no, sir. Well, no, sir. They reach an open space and fly off. They're carrying the litter, leaving through vapors, and Mrs. Coulter and the monkey move quickly up staircases and bridges, a sense of invisible activity hanging around them until they come to a piazza. Confronted by an angel with a spear, he asks their business, and Mrs. Coulter thinks that, ah, yes, these are the beings who had fallen in love with human women, the daughters of men, so long ago. She tells him not to waste time to take him to the regent at once. He awaits her. She thinks, disconcert them, she thought, keep them off balance, and this angel did not know what he should do, so he did as she told him. She still got it, Mrs. Coulter, she still got it. I love, as we get into this, everything about Enoch and how he's presented in some readings versus others, right? 
Uh, a lot of the basis for what we're going to hear from Enoch here comes from two different readings from the fallen angels, Enoch 1, 6 through 8, 1 Enoch, and then uh, Genesis 6. And they're both described as very different caricatures in these books. Uh, the fallen angels go to earth, fuck women, marry them, give them children, and those are the Nephilim, mighty men who were of old, of renown. No details are really given, but Genesis says the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Enoch's book expands on that, saying the sons of God, sons of heaven, as the story progresses, Azazel becomes the ringleader until Enoch later intercedes. 200 angels take an oath to descend Mount Hermon, find women to fucking marry and make giant fucking 450 foot tall babies with them. Uh, and they eat the blood of animals and even humans, which in Enoch's book, it kind of details, this is sinful what they are doing. They are sinning. It is bad. Uh, the angels then teach humans magical medicines, metalworking, eyeshadow and ornamentation oh, of the face and hair. Magical. Oh yeah, the devil, dude. The devil was in them. Uh, how to track stars, astrology, divination. Yes, that's why your boyfriends and girlfriends and partners are all very annoying and they know their signs. Thanks, Enoch. And your angels. Uh, and the signs of the moon. Teaching humans truly how to sin. Right? Which again, how come they are the only ones allowed to sin and humans aren't? How come the rules are different for the... Anyways, this expansion of the stories basically is blaming the wicked angelic beings for revealing these mysteries of the angels boy club to humans which result in sin. And that it's not Adam's rebellion in the garden that's responsible for human evil, but wicked angelic beings who don't remain in their appointed place. And what's more, the flood, and for us it's the flood of dust, is not the result of human sin, but the rebellion of these angelic beings. So that's a very interesting take in Enoch's book compared to kind of what the canon is, right? That like, oh, it turns out everything is the angels' fault because angels are the original greedy men. That kind of makes sense, right? Because it's an angel or a fallen angel, right, in the garden that's like, eat the apple. Eat the apple. <laughs> but it's interesting about the flood, right? Like, it's, it's like spilling over into the human realm. It is. It's a very visual thing. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I one time I was watching Speed Racer and I may or may oh not have consumed... A drug, and um, I kind of like saw a scene that made me think about how you think about like a tunnel and it's full of like food, but the angels already ate all the food, right? And like now it's just the remnants that are left in the trash, and the trash is leaking on the other side of the tunnel into humanity. And so they're just shoving all of their like bullshit trash, their like tiny magical gifts, you know, like here, have a speck of dust, kid. And they're just pooping it all down on the humans, and that's the scraps that humans get. And then humans get blamed for the scraps? How is that fair? They How don't have free fair? will, though. So Yeah, they don't that's have true. that. They don't. They're having a bad time. <laughs> don't be an angel apologist, Eliana. They're, I mean, they are having a bad... Look at them. They're having a bad time in this story. They're clearly not... Ha no one is having fun. All right, Metatron's well, they had a really good fun. time for hundreds of years, Eliana, they and now time's up for the angels. I don't even know if they were. I'm not sure they were. <laughs> um, <sighs> they had ornamentation. They had eyeshadows. That's true. They had eyeshadow. They had cool tower-like bodies, like Pokemon. 
like Gigantamax Pokemon Dynamax. No, that's actually yeah. what I'm thinking it is like. <laughs> I think it's like Fuck. that. Dude, those things are huge. They're massive. They're yeah. fucking coliseums in themselves. They're like Like Avalug. one of them is a coliseum. You think they're like little Brigmites, but really they're all Avalugs. Gigantamax Avalugs. Big boyos. Big boyos. <laughs> well, the monkey presses his nails into Marisa's flesh as they come to the room, and she grips his fur as well for reassurance. I love that. Um, and they are faced by a being made of light. He's man-shaped and man-sized. <laughs> I like that description, man-shaped. But she's too dazzled to see him clearly, and even the monkey hides his face. Metatron said, Where is she? Where is your daughter? I've come to tell you, my lord regent, she said. If she was in your power, you would have brought her. She is not, but her demon is. How can that be? I swear, Metatron, her demon is in my power. Please, great regent, hide yourself a little. My eyes are dazzled. So I was going to add an echo to that one. (laughs) (laughs) Make me sound like omniscient, you know? Oh my gosh. (laughs) Do you want? Okay, I'll do that. I'll do that for you. (laughs) You will? Oh my god, I love you so much. I can't wait. I want to be Metatron. It reminds me of like in that um, Merry Christmas Little Mama um <laughs> album collab between chance the rapper and uh yeah. jeremiah animal Verres says you better attitude my shit if you don't attitude my voice we're not friends anymore it's like that <laughs> that's no yeah, you get me um I mean, you would never post a photo of me without a filter i don't you think i would right <laughs> anyways so i am this is just me personally, and I've always been like kind of like I don't really get it. Uh, I'm not really completely sure why like Enoch is the specific biblical figure that Pullman has chosen as the main antagonist. Beyond like at, you know the cosmology that you laid out earlier makes a lot of sense, but like I feel personally as though you know Enoch is he's like kind of famous. There's like a character named after him in Agents of Shield. But he's a good guy, and but like the reason like I question it is he just doesn't feel like as famous to me. He's not like an A-list celebrity, right? In terms of like someone you would pick as well known when you want to question theology, as much as like figures like Noah, right, or Abraham. Abraham mm-hmm. is a big deal in like three, at least three religions. You got David, you got Moses. Moses is a pretty big deal. Um, Literally any of the disciples, especially the ones on the Gospels, like those are some name brand, name brand figures. Uh, I think Peter, founder of the Catholic Church, allegedly Saul slash Paul, those would have been good. Again, very big figures, and I think the only reason, again, like I can think of that he would have picked Enoch is that cosmology and like this idea of having like a second figure, the one who ascends into heaven and becomes guardian and leader of angels, and then usurps it all, which. I guess kind of happens to Enoch, but mm-hmm. again, it makes sense from a world building perspective. But for me personally, if the argument mm-hmm. is like, and maybe it was too heavy handed, he thought it would be too heavy handed or something, right? Like, if you want to be like anti religion slash anti church specifically, I feel like Peter, especially, or Paul would have made yeah. a lot of sense as like a figure to rail against. But again, maybe that's like too on the nose and like too literal. And maybe it would have gotten some folks like way more mad at these books than they already were. <laughs> the one thing I would say is like, 
I, I could see where it could be better to have, like, you know, the creator of the church could be interesting. But I think that there's just too much of that already with the magisterium, maybe. I think for balance, yeah. it made more sense to show, like, the ringleaders actually be, you know, like, pull the curtain back and this is what you have. And I think the reason Enoch specifically is why who Pullman chose is because of his story. Uh, or having, like, the Book of Enoch is such a, like, contrast. It's like, oh, yes, that is what they wrote in that cute little burn book of theirs. But did you know what they were secretly saying and doing in heaven? It's like Mushroom's Testament for Jesus, <laughs> right? From A Song of Ice and Fire, for those of you ASWAF readers. Uh, it, it takes all the smoke that they've blown up everyone's asses in the regular Bible and kind of blows it up and is like, I mean, that's kind of true. That's, that's like a half-truth, Paul. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like... Kind of, but you left out these juicy bits where it turns out, uh, I mean, like, it almost is like he's shifting, you know, the, the they're shifting the blame a little bit, just saying, like, interesting, gentlemen of the Bible, with all those fingers pointing back at yourself when you're pointing that finger. Yeah, and I guess, like, Enoch is also way more ancient, so it feels like this has been going on for a long time versus, yeah. I guess, you know, Peter and Paul are much more kind of recent, right? Like... Mm -hmm. less than 2,000 years ago versus slash 2,000 years ago. Yeah. Not less than. More than 2,000 years ago based yeah. on uh, we are in the year 2022. Where we are. <laughs> yeah, I'm but like, where sorry, this was. Sorry. Where but, this was. Yeah, you know what I mean. You know Similar, what I mean. yeah. And and that's like fairly recent-ish. And I just think they're so administrative, right? Like those men, what we've seen of the magisterium and of men in power at the magisterium, like uh, Father McPhail ain't shit. I mean, that's a big theme in this book. Yeah. Men ain't shit. Uh, Father McPhail in this book, you put him against Metatron. Metatron, Father McPhail is an associate level employee. Okay, like Metatron yeah. is, he's EVP baby of everything. The E stands for everything. Like he is like, he I am in charge. Oh. The, oh. <laughs> hey, wait a second. Uh, I am in charge. He's like a real boss though. You know, like he's like, oh, yeah. you're just a little detail person working on the ground, McPhail. When you look at like, so, like, when I think of the church creator, like, he'd probably talk to the angels, this dude, I'd imagine. But, like, he doesn't seem, he still seems administrative, is my thought process there. Yeah, I guess I just think of him as more representative, right, of the church. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, but, I, I again, Having an I just, old angel is kind of cooler, I guess. I just think more Enoch's rad. just, like, I just don't <laughs> think he's famous enough for me. I think that's more yeah. of it. I'm just, like... I guess, but also... I'm really not in the Jesus standom, so I'm just still, I'm not really sure. I'm just like him, her, her, Beyonce. Uh, but coming back to, you know, how Enoch actually is in the this book, right? We're talking about Metatron, the name, title slash term. Apparently it has many different proposed meanings of what it could have meant with a lot of different potential etymologies for it. Some are like to guard or to protect. Other ones are co-occupant of the divine throne. Other ones are like to measure or messenger. So lots of different proposed ideas. But anyway, like in regards to maybe why it makes sense to pick Enoch slash Metatron, we have this construction of the dual figures of Metatron and the first angel in this book, right? And again, first angel claims godhood, 
but it was just like the first one and is false as Zephania learns and Pullman may be taking I guess inspiration from the book of Daniel like there are a couple of moments in which like dual figures emerge but the book of Daniel identifies one of them as the Ancient of Days whom again Mrs. Coulter sees in the crystal litter and is like interesting not that interesting scrolls past and then there's the other one who's like shaped like man one like a man Right. And the Ancient of Days gives the one, like a man, dominion over pretty much everything. And this is commonly interpreted in Christianity, specifically, as being Jesus, before, you know, he takes on humanity, which also makes sense. But Pullman here interprets it, as the others also interpret it, right, as Metatron, and clearly Enoch taking over the kingdom slash empire of he- heaven. And as we've said before, right, Jesus is really only named like twice in this trilogy and i'm not sure if he's ever named in the book of dust books of dust i i forgot because we've discussed this and only ever happens in the context of mary speaking as a figure from our world and like her time as a nun and never at all from like lyra or the magisterium or the authority it just like is of no consequence in Lyra's world in their theology that's interesting too yeah yeah it does seem like separation of church and state right yeah, I, I don't know. Except really it's get like it. not. <laughs> Separation of church and, you know, the whole entire spirit of everything. Oh, I think he's mentioned like once, right? Like in La Belle Sauvage La Belle. when they're talking about like the League of St. Alexander or something. But yeah, it's something school wise. Interesting. That's something to think about. Was that a spoiler? Kind of, but that's okay. Yeah, whatever. <laughs> We're, we've done a bad job. We'll see. We'll see if I take that out. So Metatron's second figure is, it's all right, right? Like he veils himself in cloud and now it's a little easier. It's like looking at the sun through smoked glass. Now he looks simply like an early middle-aged man. Tall, powerful, commanding. She can't really tell if he's clothed or if he has wings. His eyes, though, are very forceful. That is what's commanding. And I'm like... Oh, girl, you have a type. Middle-aged, tall, <laughs> powerful, commanding. Okay. This is going to be sexual as shit. This scene is going to be like, Ruth Wilson is going to do this in the HDM show, and she is going to... Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Uh, and the allure's obvious, right? Like, before his normal man form, especially, that sexiness of not knowing, just a huge, shadowy, powerful figure, right, to choke you. Um, sexy, like, could beat me up. You know, throw me into a fucking pit of despair and nothing. Yeah. I mean, definitely could beat us up. But even if he's good at choking, he's the one who gets <laughs> choked later on by some Oh my Maria. god. Oh, amen. Amen. Uh, she tells Metatron that she's coming from Azrael, who has Lyra's demon. And he's like, what does, what does he want with the child? She tells him to keep him from her until she comes of age. She wants to keep Lyra from you, my lord. And I'm betraying Asriel, she says. I'm telling you the truth, but I must go back to my master, Asriel. She says, look at me clearly and tell me what you see. So he looks at her, examining every scrap of her, and she feels naked, body and ghost and demon, all vulnerable to him, and that her nature would just have to answer for her. We have a comparison here of Lyra had lied to Yofra Rackinson with her words. Her mother was lying with her whole life. 
The Metatron says that he sees corruption, envy, lust for power, cruelty, coldness, vicious curiosity, and poisonous malice. He does, in fact, use the term malice. She's never shown compassion, sympathy, or kindness without calculating how it would benefit her and says that she is a suspect of moral filth. And part of her is pretty devastated knowing the truth, but part of her is also triumphant. She tells him she plans to betray Azrael easily, that the child will walk into his hands and feels a movement of vapor around her, almost ice-like, confusing her. Amber Spyglass is so good because it is Marisa's book, right? It enriches Coulter's mm-hmm. motives, and this moment here, she accepts, she knows she's sinned. And because she's a sinner, because this is that moment where the truth comes out, she knows there's nothing else she needs to live for, kind of? Like, she knows, like, that's what I needed to hear, that I'm awful, and now I can do my thing, and I can go. Um, It makes her able to deceive with her entire being and soul, right? She's lying with her whole life. What a line. And, and Philip's yeah. not subtle. By He's not playing coy. He, he drew that direct line to Lyra and Yofer's encounter. Uh, just like when Lyra realizes he was pretending he had a demon. Then she knew she was safe. Mm-hmm. Coulter realizes in that moment, as soon as she knows she's fooled him just enough, because there is something else in her heart, not just that. She's able to take advantage of that opposite here, that he is so soulless, he craves some sort of demon himself, some sort of companionship. And Coulter, kind of in a similar way to the witches, safeguarding themselves from the specters, right? Not bringing their demons. Coulter is able to kind of separate something within her to be soulless herself, to sever herself from the situation, almost, we see. Uh, And it's very disassociative, right? She puts herself outside her body, like the way Mary has to be with the Yijing or with uh, the Amber Spyglass or Lyra with the Alethiometer or Will with the knife. She's able to compartmentalize her love, her loathing, her emotions and her pain and betray herself, right? What her very heart is saying, she's able to shut it off in this moment. Yeah, absolutely. It's, It's very... Very impressive, right? Like how she's able to hide all of that. And I guess it's because she's lying with her whole life and all of her actions. (laughs) And none of them speak very well for her. And (laughs) I mean, if, like you said, you know, Mary's talisman is the amber spyglass or in the Yijing and Lyra's the lithiometer and go with a knife, Marisa's is lying, right? She's very good at it. And he describes her right as the cesspit of moral filth and in that i feel like marisa again right that that comparison between lyra and marisa's situations from book one and three marisa is representing exactly the same thing that a demon represents and that's humanity because marisa has sinned again and again and again and sinning is to be human right it's being imperfect and while that has also made her like really bad and very evil in many ways because you know she she kills children without remorse like that's pretty bad it's like really bad mm-hmm. all of like she's she's the embodiment of those seven deadly sins right she's got that pride that greed that envy lust and maybe gluttony and wrath she's all those things she's not very slothful she's way too ambitious to be slothful but anyway she's all of these other things and Again, that, that's human, and Yofer and Metatron covet the same thing in regards to desiring humanity. Yeah. 
Metatron tells Marisa when he was a man, he had plenty of wives, but none were as smoking fine as Mrs. Coulter. He was Enoch, son of Jared, son of Mahalalel, of Canaan, of Anash, of Seth, of Adam, living on earth for 65 years until the authority brought him to the kingdom. Damn, he really reached retirement age. He's like, I'm done. <laughs> he's like, time to cash in. And he's also very into genealogy.com, apparently. Yeah. Hey, at least he didn't get on Facebook. You know, I mean, that's where relatives go to die. That's uh, true. <laughs> <laughs> he loved his wife's flesh. He even defended the sons of heaven who fell for the daughters of earth. But the authority had been fixed against him and made him prophecy their doom. He had been regent for thousands of years and celibate, and Coulter asks, is it not time he had a consort? Yeah, so she feels exposed again and in danger, but she trusts her flesh, knowing that he has none. What a loser. He covets <laughs> it, and he's close now, able to smell her perfumed hair. How does she still smell perfumed? I guess she just came from, like, where, wherever fortress anyways perfumed hair her flesh and to touch her with his scalding hands we have this line of there was a strange sound like the murmur and crackle you hear before you realize that what you're hearing is your house on fire tell me what lord asriel's doing and where he is he said so incidentally there was actually a fire in the alleyway like right by me and i'm like looking down i'm like there's the fire truck and there's the there's the huge plume of smoke. See, I was just like, bringing you in. On my block. Oh, today. No. Well, hopefully that fire is out. It does seem to be, but hopefully good, those people, good. I guess, I, are okay. Are too, yeah. Jesus. It seemed bad. Well, I do love the simile. I think it's a great simile. The crackle you hear before you realize your house is on fire. Oh my god. That's masterful. That is perfect. And it's like knowing you are in a trap. Like, you, this is where you locked your fate. This is it. Uh, you have chosen, Marisa, right here, that you're going to see this through. Metatron had dispatched the authority, he says, somewhere to stay alive and trusting the storm to give cover to the angels. They may have left quietly, but however, as we spin real quick away from Metatron and Marisa... A certain Cliffgast had watched all of this happening, and having oh. a very specific memory, as Cliffgasts are wont to do, he pauses, eating a warm liver, remembering a very specific babbling fox, and he flies upwards with his troop, following him. Those are my friends. <laughs> and then we go to the angels! Thanks for that nice brief respite and check-in with Eliana's friends. Zephania and the angels search all night and through the morning until they find a very minute crack in the mountain. A new crack. They explore it, they enlarge it, and then Asriel is suddenly climbing within to caverns below, and all of this is illuminated by dust. Stelmaria points that out, floating steadily down. Asriel had never seen it with his naked eye, and nor so much of it. The tunnel opens, and he's on top of a very vast cavern, large enough to contain at least a dozen cathedrals. There's no floor, the sides slope to a very great pit below where dust is pouring down and is lost. So I'm going to be honest, I am like just not completely sure how Asriel got down to the abyss or the cavern. Like they kind of tell us, they're like, and he started climbing down the mountain to the abyss. But I'm like, 
I guess we're kind of told that it's just such a big explosion that maybe the abyss is stretching across different worlds, but also like he sees the world of the dead on the other side. Like if the other side, like it's so, so far away, which is where the dead are escaping from. Does that mean like there was a second window this whole time and that before like the abyss blew up, everyone could have just exited from there. I don't know. How does he get down there? It's all very confusing, like written and maybe it's like whatever, right? Maybe I'm just overthinking it suspension of disbelief storytelling good times move it forward but even just picturing it like yeah it is a little suspension of disbelief but also it's like suspension of this world like this whole entire world seems to be kind of crumbling Mm -hmm. right uh and falling apart at the seams so to me it just kind of shows especially because the clouded mountain is you know situated so and it's brought over here which is interesting because you have like a moving carriage to to move these people and house these people a moving garden so to speak as you've mm-hmm. talked about before but Asriel's mountain is seems to be built on a similar plane in a similar universe right so it just seems like this entire universe is emptying out bottoming out but where did almost. the window to go from there to this part of the abyss come from that's what i also like do not get like how did he get there i just I mean, the crack in the in the basalt. Like Zafania found that crack, and then he got oh, okay. into it. He just like happened. There just happened to be. But again, that means maybe that was caused by the explosion, and it didn't exist before the explosion. Because I'm like, that means that that was there the whole time, and everyone could have just gotten out there. Okay, well that's true. That's true, right? But like, I, that's, no, that's I don't... A, a valid question. I think it's just a different part of that world where they cut into. Like, I think, like, it's, they're both in the same universe right now. You know, like, I just think they didn't, because, like, his rock has a hole in it, and he went into it, and now he's crawling down to a different area of the abyss. But where did so that kind window of sound... come from? Because it goes into the world of the dead. But, like, it's not, like, the rock has a crack in it, so the world is falling apart. Like, the whole entire, like time and relative space okay. as they know it because of the war is like disappearing that, okay. beneath them. That makes That's sense. what I think is happening. That makes that makes sense to me. I will accept Like the that. abyss is eating everything. Yes. I will you accept know? that. So like yeah. the abyss is slowly breaking things apart it seems. Like a black hole. it seems hole. that yeah. 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 I mean okay. it is. It's nothing. It's absolutely nothing. In, and in like, across several dimensions. That makes sense to me. Yeah. I mean there's a hole in Mary's universe. There's a hole in Lyra's yeah. world. There's a hole here. Uh, the universe There's a is hole breaking here, apart. Right? Okay. okay. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Um, th- but it is that. It's like the multiverse is breaking apart, right? Like all these universes are fucking breaking apart. Um, and-, and we'll get to some of that, I think, too. But uh, and then you have like there's nothing, just nothing. But then there's the rocks, right? Like so they're clinging, they're clinging to like what's left of reality around them. Oh, almost. they're gonna scrap. Okay. <laughs> oh my god. But actually, literally, kind of. Yeah, literally. Okay, I accept that. Because I was okay. like, how did he get here? Why didn't they just... Anyways, why did we go through this entire fucking journey? So, Azriel and his demon climb toward the abyss, seeing what's happening at the far side of the gulf in the gloom. And there's a movement, right? The movement is a bajillion ghosts, women, children, men, every being he had ever seen across all these different worlds, right? Um, and he knows that Lyra must have come through here now. And Slamaria tells him that he's got to tread carefully because, as you all remember, Lyra almost fell into this thing. And I actually love that when Azrael sees that. He's like, Lyra did that. I know that this impactful thing was Lyra. So that's nice. Meanwhile, 
Lyra and Will are soaked through. They're stumbling through the storm, past gullies, where streams run red with blood. And... <laughs> Lady Slovakia hasn't moved or spoken in several <laughs> minutes. And Lyra worries that she's dying. She is, in fact, dying. Tiolis is also very quiet, but rouses, telling Will that he hears horses and... Azrael doesn't have a cavalry, so he warns them to hide from the enemy, and they head to some bushes, just in time to evade the riders. All of this noise covers up the screeching and snarling of the cliff gas from above, surrounding something in the mud, something large with walls of crystal, a giant cage. They hammer at it with fists and rocks, shrieking, yelling, because they just feel like it. They just felt like doing it. And it ends with, and... Before Will and Lyra could stop and run the other way, they stumbled right into the middle of the troop. Interesting that even the cliff gas want to dethrone and kill God. Yeah, they're just like, yeah, actually, they're like, I don't know, for shits and giggles. That's what he remembered. That's what yeah. the cliff gas remembered, though. Exactly. He remembered, oh, shit, I heard that was God and I should eat him. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They're like, what could be fun? What could be interesting? Wow, we respect up. Cliff Gas in this house. We respect them. Wow. Uh, all right, authorities end. Uh-oh, this is a big one, a big action chapter. Get ready, buckle up. We open up with Mr. Blake Bilake, William Blake. <laughs> For empire is no more, and now the lion and wolf shall cease. They call that a storm of swords where I'm from. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, Thank you, I'll be here all day. Oh my god. So... Pullman actually includes like a good portion of not like a huge portion, but a good portion of this same poem that this line comes from, and including I think that line, poem slash book by William Blake at the start of this book, The Amber Spyglass, and it comes from America, a prophecy. And we might have spoken a little bit about this poem as well in the Book of Dust in regards to some of those lines regarding like a Prince of Albion. And I, I do think it makes sense, I guess, why he included this. I'm like is in regards to you know america is a republic it, it's a it's a really great poem book and Azrael wants to make a republic of heaven and you know the way that like the poem describes america is really not how i would describe the united states <laughs> but you know again that's why william blake is remembered all these years later and i have a podcast that's a very, very observant take. I really appreciate that. <laughs> uh, and to be fair, like, I think this is also a lot about, you know, um, fighting for an actual cause, which America yeah. was once. What America is now, I mean, William Blake wasn't a fucking prophet, Eliana. Jesus. He did get some of that right of what was happening now. He predicted some of this shit because just, it was all the same then, too. But just, you know, flair for so. drama. You know? A penchant, if you will. Yeah. I won't. Um, I, yeah, but I think it is about that. like, And also sacrificing and bleeding for your country, like good countrymen, which is about to fucking happen. Uh, and like ideals, I guess. That ideal of like, yeah. I don't know, democracy. And a better world. Things. A yeah. better world. That's what the poem's, I, mean, I guess, about. Yeah. And that's what Asriel and Coulter do choose in this chapter. They mm-hmm. could have cho- They could have chosen a lot of other things in, in this crazy vacuum going on of power and war and bloodshed but they actually choose to put themselves aside and their petty bullshit for once and they sacrifice for the hopes that many worlds can have a future at the hands of their daughter which is 
This is a powerful chapter. This might be one of yeah. the best chapters in the whole fucking thing. This is. Yeah, ugh. absolutely. Not just the power vacuum, literally the vacuum. Yeah, literally Expanding the below their feet, yeah. Re the abyss. <laughs> that is true. Yes, regarding said abyss. Uh, so Coulter is in the abyss, right? And she watches Asriel and his demon climbing below, whispering to Metatron, look how he hides. He creeps through the dark like a rat. Metatron says, I could strike him down. And Marisa's like, no, 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 no. I want to see the pain and betrayal on his face. How about we follow him and catch him for funsies? I like how Metatron buys this sort of her being like, I want to twist the knife. He's like, sure. <laughs> Anything for you, sweet tits. Yeah. Uh, the, the dust is lighting it up. Oh my god, beautiful, beautiful. Yeah, it sounds like it's going to be amazing. Uh, I want to see this show. Oh my god, give it to me. Coulter can't pay attention to the dust, though, which is crazy because that's the one thing she's been fucking chasing her entire life. She has to keep the shadow beside her occupied, under her control, and they climb down. She gets tired, and Metatron can kind of sense her emotions and is like, what are you thinking about? What are you thinking about? She claims she's glad the baby will- the baby? She's glad the child will never grow up to be loved and to love she says, I thought I loved her when she was a baby, but now... Metatron is like, interesting. So you're saying you do have emotions. He sensed regret in those kind of words she said. Regret that she wouldn't see Lyra grow. And Coulter's like, fuck, I really gotta pull this one out of my ass. <laughs> and she's like, obviously, you don't realize that it's not regret. It's about Lyra's coming of age and how this was stolen from me. My coming of age. I regret not knowing you, dear Metatron, in my girlhood, because I would have been passionately devoted to you. It's such a weird line. I'm like, what the fuck does that mean, Marisa, in your girlhood? Well, it's manipulation, man. It's like, look, it's just like Maddie and Nate in Euphoria when she told him she was a virgin, but she wasn't. Mm. This is like, Coulter's like, yes. When I was an innocent young maid, still not deflowered, I would have devoted myself to you, Metatron, my very virginal, clear, pure flesh. Because, you know, like, that's like a weird thing in religion. You know, they really yeah. embrace that shit. So she's really playing it up. She's milking and, it. Ah, she's milking it. And she keeps that routine on this whole time. She keeps her scent of her flesh, which, first of all, Eliana, that girl is not going anywhere without her black opium sprayed on. Okay, she's not gonna go girl boss in the abyss. <laughs> she's got it in there. her, like, pack. You know, she powdered she up. Yes. Think of her, like, Selena Meyer and the oh monkey, like, Gary. The monkey is Gary, Eliana. Okay, the monkey is in her purse, like, your lipstick, ma'am. That's pretty intense. I gotta think more deeply about this sometimes. <laughs> uh, oh. She tells Metatron, stay behind me. Let me lull Asriel out. But come as a shadow, small. Otherwise, he'll just let Lyra's demon fly away. <sighs> so, we have a line of, The regent was a being whose profound intellect had had thousands of years to deepen and strengthen itself, and whose knowledge extended over a million universes. Nevertheless, at that moment, he was blinded by his twin obsessions to destroy Lyra and to possess her mother. Classic Marisa. This is just, you know, she's used to this. She's been doing this for a couple books now. And again, themes, men ain't shit. Like, Metatron is over here, like, smartest man in the universe, right? He's like, I have all this power flowing through me. And he's like, your skin smells real pretty and your daughter sucks. I gotta kill that bitch. Um, 
You don't have to ask Pullman what he thinks about God and the men that prop God's image up, do you? I think it's pretty clear. I think he's making it very clear in that passage. Yeah. The regent was so smart, his IQ was 800, but yet he couldn't resist the pussy. Oh my gosh. But actually, though, and like you got like there, right? simultaneously embodied in both of them like what's called you know the madonna and the horror complex right there in that line to destroy lyra and to possess her mother and i i do appreciate that he included this line because you are kind of like i don't understand like this is a thousands of years old creature he's like no no no, we're addressing this like he addresses it up front so he allows Marisa to go ahead, to meet Azriel at a great block of granite just out of the region's sight, and everything is permeated by falling dust, giving soft clarity to each tiny detail, and in the light, Coulter's face is wet with tears. She's gritting her teeth, trying not to sob, and Azriel holds her as the golden monkey holds the snow leopard, and she quietly asks if Lyra's safe, if she's found her demon. And he tells her, John Perry's ghost is watching over them. And then they discuss the beauty of dust before he asks her what she told Metatron. And she tells him that she lied and asks if they'll live on after this. Not if they fall in the abyss, Azriel says, but at least we can give Lyra time to have her demon to live, to grow up, and she'll be safe. <sighs> that is painful. And the next line, oh man, this next line is so painful. He kissed her. She felt as soft and light in his arms as she had when Lyra was conceived 13 years before. Damn, that was passionate. That was a passionate night, huh? Why did Satan write these books? I have some words that I would like to have with Pullman. I don't know what it is, but it's very beautiful. You know, it is. It's like there was passion and love there. And she tells him, she says... I told him I was going to betray you and Lyra, and he believed me, because I'm full of wickedness. My lies were great, but I love Lyra, and I don't know where this love suddenly came from. But her heart bursts with it. Uh, We have this passage. She says, I was lying with every nerve and fiber and everything I'd ever done. I wanted him to find no good in me, and he didn't. There's none. But I love Lyra. Where did this love come from? I don't know. It came to me like a thief in the night, and now I love her so much. My heart is bursting with it. All I could hope was that my crimes were so monstrous that the love was no bigger than a mustard seed in the shadow of them, and I wished I'd committed even greater ones to hide it more deeply still. But the mustard seed had taken root and was growing, and the little green shoot was splitting my heart wide open, and I was so afraid he'd see. Damn, she wishes she'd committed greater ones, like... Just to hide the shame of how greatly she loved Lyra. <laughs> like, she <laughs> committed pretty great crimes. They were pretty big crimes. Like, holy shit, what else I would do kill you 700 more children if I could forget how much I love my daughter. I love her so much. Oh my god. What a what a queen. What a fucking absolute woman. <laughs> I, I mean, girl boss. every kid. Can't keep gas like girl boss. That's that's her. In this moment, she's like, I would have done more crimes. Oh my god. Anyways, um, so I find this description of her love for Lyra, though, I mean, it is really interesting because, first of all, it's it's this incredibly moving passage. 
Also, what the fuck? But also, it, it, it actually pulls from a lot of biblical passages that are commonly trotted out in Christianity. So, for example, she describes her love for Lyra coming like a thief in the night, which is how the second coming of Christ is described many, many, many times in the Bible. Uh, this idea that uh, the second coming will be swift and it will be quiet and blessed are those who stay awake awaiting his arrival. And so Lyra is being described again through this language. It's tying her to this idea of being a messianic figure in this, but also this idea of a second coming, right? But rather than Jesus' second coming, it is the second coming of Eve. And of course, the way that Lyra defeats death, right? That's part of the messianic prophecies. That's what Jesus was prophesy to do and gives everyone kind of like this eternal life by releasing everyone from eternal purgatory. The second, um, phrase that comes up a lot in Christianity that people like to trot out is this likening Mrs. Coulter's love for Lyra as that of like a mustard seed, the size of a mustard seed. It shows up quite a few times in the Gospels and mustard seeds are seen as among the smallest or the least of seeds and they are indeed pretty small. I have some in my kitchen and Jesus uses it to describe this idea of faith the size of a mustard seed and that even faith of that size again so small can move mountains or can tell a tree to uproot itself and move and there's also another instance in which uh, Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed that has been planted by man in a field and then it would grow into a tree that becomes the largest in the garden and it's a place where the birds can come and nest and I'll come back to this tree thing um, in a sec I love it so much. In the Gospel of Matthew, there's the line, it's greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so birds in the air lodge in its branches. Yes. And like, Lyra is the tree. She is a harborage for safety for others, right? A sanctuary, if you will. Yeah. Lyra provides sanctuary and by watering this mustard seed with your many, many bloody sins, Marisa. You've grown She's like, this I would sanctuary. do more, I would water it more. <laughs> But yeah, absolutely. She It's that and also that her love for her daughter mm-hmm. it allows that sanctuary to flourish. And she is tied with birds a lot, Lyra. But yeah, yeah. Maurice's love for her daughter, it's also, again, like by likening it to that mustard seed, um, I think kind of compares it to this idea of faith. Again, not just as Lyra, as this, like messianic figure saving all of the worlds, but also this belief that like if Marisa just takes this you know very literal leap of faith with Azriel, the faith that her daughter will be able to grow up to live and have a good life. Yeah, that takes a very big amount of faith, and she's fighting herself this entire way. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, dust is all around her. The very thing that she could reach out, touch, and learn more about than she's ever been able to, right? All she's wanted was to learn it and understand it. But yet, she has to shove all that aside now and do the big deed. And she gathers herself. And she could climb up. Like, this is literally top of the ladder when it comes to the Magisterium, right? Consort yeah. to Metatron. Like, there it is in her grasp. You could literally just start fucking this dude and, like, stay there for thousands of years, honestly. Literally probably thousands of years, yeah. Yeah. She gathers herself and tells Azrael soon he'll lose patience. Metatron, they'll have to take him down and go with him themselves. He kisses her. He promises her Lyra will be safe and says, call him. This is so emotional. The dust is falling around them like ash or even like snow. 
You know, that very thing they try to master and finally it's mastered them. They threw away everything that meant anything to them. They tossed people aside, uh, dust, destiny, fate, mastering them and ending them. And, you know, there's this line, uh, it's a Latin phrase, quad me, treat me, destreat me. What nourishes me also destroys me. And that's how this feels. Them in the dust, admitting their love for one another, admitting all of the fears that have held them back from loving each other, their daughter, and living a true, full-spirited, loving life. Yeah. I mean, I don't know why they gotta do that right now. They're about to have, like, all eternity to do that. But, um... <laughs> They're gonna be falling for each other for a long time. A long, long time, but... Yeah, I mean, again, Lyra as that tree, right? That life-giving mustard tree and Marisa's love for her. It, it lets her do the impossible. That moving of mountains, but... Also, the faith is a seed that becomes, again, a tree, like the tree of knowledge in the Garden of Eden. And also we have a couple of other seeds in the story, too, like the seed pods. Yeah. But anyway. So, Marisa does it. She calls for him and tells him it's time, and Metatron appears, cloaked in shadow, taking in exactly what's happening. And it's like, this is not, maybe... What I expected. Watching the demons embrace the woman and Lord Azrael, who leaps. They seize Metatron around the waist and they take him down. Judo. Bah, bah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, before we run into the action of it, I just love how much the language and moments mirror the Northern Lights here. Right? This is complete. The demons swooning into one another and embracing one another. Uh, his hands still clasping her head, tense suddenly drew her toward him in a passionate kiss. Lyra thought it seemed cruelty, then love, and looked at their demons to see a strange sight. The snow leopard, tense, crouching with her claws, just pressing in the gold monkey's flesh, and the monkey relaxed, blissful, swooning on the snow. Mrs. Coulter pulled fiercely back from the kiss and said, No, Azriel, my place is in this world, not that. Come with me, he said, urgent, powerful. Come and work with me. We couldn't work together, you and I. No, you and I could take the universe to pieces and put it together again, Marisa. We could find the source of dust and stifle it forever. Well, here they are and they're fixing that. Yeah. They're reversing that. Not stifling it. No, they're, they're literally trying to blow that bitch up so that they can fix it and reverse the flow of everything. This is just... This is full circle, literally. Literal full circle. This is a character arc. <sighs> this An is arc. how you do it, people. This is how you do it. Wow. Um, wow. Oh my god. Okay, oh. back back to the action. Back to the action. Please, please. Metatron pummels Azrael as they go, <laughs> but he keeps his arms clamped on Metatron, who keeps trying to break free. Mrs. Coulter joins in, the demons too, and they are flung around as Metatron moves, crushing them against the rocks. Azrael is able to crush the breath out of him, though, and Mrs. Coulter clamps down on his other wing, and both of them, they are exhausted and weakening because they are just like little fleshy humans, but also the flesh makes them stronger, and finally Mrs. Coulter drags her fingers deep in Metatron's eyes. I'm like, oh shit, oh shit, she's going for the eyes, and his cry bounces off the cliffs, and still Mario makes one last, again, this is the choking time, right? She makes a leap for Metatron's throat, but in this moment, I want to point out the monkey is holding, he's just pulling back Metatron's hair, he's like, there's the neck go for it Stalmaria. and he doesn't say that but that's that's what he 
Anyways, he falls to his knees. And Mrs. Coulter, falling with him, sees Azrael gaze at her, blood in his eyes. She scrambles up to seize Metatron's hair. Oh wait, this is it. She scrambles up to seize Metatron's hair, bearing his throat for Stelmaria. There's, there's a lot of throat shit going on. But Metatron is able to, like, shroom his wings out. He flies upwards, takes them upward, just like Charizard, when he's about to do seismic throw or seismic toss. And if they keep going, Azrael may fall. This is the moment, the era, the culture this right here. Get ready. Lyra's mother stood and found her footing and leapt with all her heart to hurl herself against the angel and her demon and her dying lover and seize those beating wings and bear them all down together into the abyss. <gasps> Coulter did that shit. Yes. Yes. Together. Technically, it's Leap to Faith. It's a little of both. I was channeling Spider-Man. This is also about many different worlds. Spider-Verse. <laughs> Leap of and Faith I'm is a big theme in it. Cheaty Anna Kendrick would say otherwise. It's Leap to Faith. Oh my gosh. Kierkegaard <laughs> said Leap to Faith. Okay? Okay. So, again, nitpicking the language. I guess it insinuates <laughs> that Selmaria also jumps, but we don't know for sure. It doesn't say, but I guess it doesn't matter because I'm realizing even if Azrael dies here in the abyss, then Selmaria would just like dissolve into dust, and because of the suction slash tide of the abyss, it would just bring her into there with them anyway, so whatever. Anyway. There is no actual hell in Pullman's cosmology, as far as I can tell, other than like, I guess, pandemonium. Uh, Azrael's like, oh shit thing and because of that the abyss and hell i think kind of end up becoming one in terms of this idea of like nothingness forever and ever and being away from all that is good and like actual feeling and consciousness and that in and of itself being a kind of damnation which despite that again not being the case in milton's cosmology in which the abyss and hell are different but I think what really drives home the idea that Azrael and Marisa are sacrificing themselves, finally they're sacrificing themselves and not everyone else, to this damnation after, again, killing a bunch of people, including sacrificing children, which apparently was not enough for Marisa, uh, in order to condemn Metatron to damnation slash hell as well, is that there are three of them. And the strained relationships that are between all three of them, right, it's the number of people who choose to descend that reminds me a little of Jean-Paul Sartre's uh, famous existentialist play about hell, No Exit, where having to be perceived through the lens of others and rebuked by them and like that dance between desire and rejection becomes that hell slash torture for those three people. And it leads us to that like famous phrase of hell is other people. Um, because, I mean, they're going to be the only three people to one another for forever. <laughs> and... <laughs> And for all of their crimes, right? Despite, like, this being a final act of heroism, it isn't redemption of their souls, like, in the sense that, like, the Bible necessarily means, but depending on the reader and interpretation, maybe you could see it as redemption within the story slash narrative mind. I know there's a lot of discussion about redemption lately, but so I'm just saying, maybe. Um, and while for these three, right, the abyss and hell, maybe other people... Thankfully, as we'll get in later chapters and episodes, not to spoil too much, but I would say that the argue also, I would say that the story also argues that heaven is born of other people too. Yeah, I mean, heaven isn't just a place on earth. Past. 
Heaven is a people. Yes. Heaven is a place. But I mean, yeah, it's heaven is a place that you create. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's what Asriel hoped to create for the people. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, his life is pretty much over. I'm mm-hmm. going to have to find someone else to shit talk in another book, you know, but I, I, have, I have candidates. I have candidates. Okay, well, <laughs> text them to me. I bet I can guess which ones they are. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's interesting. That is, uh, all I know is it's going to be an interesting throuple, and I'm really glad there are a lot of holes to go around in that abyss, because they're going to have fun, you know? I think it could get real kinky down there. I think Asriel's bisexual, so yeah. It's oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. There's going to be dicks everywhere. They're going to get bored after a while, so. Yeah. Well, uh, no, they aren't, because angels can shapeshift. We've been over this. OP is fuck. He's just going to be in there oh shapeshifting. God. There's a lot of things that they can be doing down there. Forever. I think But they got to do it, like, while, while, you know, falling forever. You know, like, again, like, dragonflies having sex in the air. So meanwhile... The cliff ghasts hear Lyra exclaim out in dismay, and Will springs forward, slashing at the nearest one. Tialis lands on the cheek of the biggest, kicking hard before being thrown off while Will is slicing and dicing their arms off as well. No, the cliff ghasts. Oh, They're just Muppets. They don't know anything. Uh, he realizes Tialis has gone out a little too hard on the cliff ghasts, and then realizes no. Oh no, Tialis has ultimately gone out. He is dead. That motherfucker no. is dead. Yes, that is pretty much what he does too. Lyra is focused on the unbroken crystal litter, though it is stained and smeared with mud and blood from all the cliff ghast executions that just happened. Inside, <sighs> whatever's in there, it's old, crying, cowering, and still alive. Will offers to help. Uh, the being hide. He's like, can we help you? And he offers out his hand and Lyra reaching out to trying to smile at him. Yeah, so I feel like, you know, we need to look at this moment. It's a pretty big deal, even though it's like a very brief moment, right? Because in like two seconds, uh, the authority is about to dissolve. And I, I think I've probably actually spoken about this before, but I do love how it all works in terms of Lyra bidding Will to open the crystal litter. She's like, we have to help him. And then she leads the authority to his end out of compassion and, mm-hmm. and innocence, right? I guess kind of ignorance too, as it was prophesied. She has to not really know what she's doing and she doesn't. She's just like, we're helping him. We're helping authority and... It's not through malice or wanting to overthrow or kill him. So that I think that's really an important part of this motivation. And she does it because she wants this thing in the crystal to be able to live his life. To free him from what is clearly a prison. As she helped the other ghosts, right? Seek freedom. And because what was the use of all of that power and prestige, if you think about it, that the authority had, if he never got to experience it anymore, right, and was imprisoned, even if it was, to an extent, one of his own making, and Lyra extends compassion anyway. It doesn't matter to whom. She extends that compassion, just like when, again, talking about Usagi and Sailor Moon, when she stops and she reaches down and saves Sailor Galaxia from falling into the Galaxy Cauldron. And anyways... Who knows how long this guy's been trapped in that crystal bubble, but now he can finally feel and experience. It's mercy. She's showing him the Lord's mercy. That's what she's showing him. Yeah. She doesn't know it, but she is. (laughs) The Lyra's mercy. And, you know, like you said, he's light as paper. The air's damaging. He vanishes moments later, dissolves. A sigh of the most profound and exhausted relief follows him. 
Then he was gone, a mystery dissolving in mystery. All you had to do was hold God's hand and tell him it was going to be all right, apparently, and that he was a good old boy, good old lad, you know? Like, I mean, imagine living so long as a sentient being that all you want to do is die. That's such a mood. That's so me. So me, bestie. Uh, I really love that line, though. A mystery dissolving into the mystery. Because, you know, life is still mystery. Once more, it brings out some of those great themes. And it it also reminds me of the mysteries in Christianity. The the joyful, luminous, sorrowful, and glorious mysteries. I won't read through all of it, but, you know, you have a few anchor points of the story that almost fit this uh, in the joyful mysteries, you know, the annunciation of the angel Gabriel, the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, the presentation of Jesus in the temple, the finding of Jesus in the temple, the luminous mysteries, uh, you have the baptism in Jordan, the proclamation of the kingdom, the institution of the Eucharist, you have the sorrowful mysteries, the agony of Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane, the agony of Jesus in the garden, Mm -hmm. Uh, the scourging of Jesus at the pillow or the crowning of thorns or the crucifixion. And then, of course, the glorious mysteries that I think are very much in this book everywhere. The resurrection of Jesus, the ascension of Jesus into heaven, the descent of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, the assumption of Mary into heaven and the coronation of Our Lady in heaven. I feel like there are just so many mysteries that could almost Mm -hmm. adhere to the story's arc. Yeah, there are. There are. And I like that you've, like, brought out, there are a lot of mysteries, right? Like, that's part of the aspect of, like, that faith and religion, and mm-hmm. it's fun. And if you've ever prayed the rosary, then you get to relive and go through all of these mysteries when you get to the proper bead. But I want to say you skipped over my, one of my favorites, the wedding at Cana, because that was Jesus' oh, yeah. first miracle. I mean, it's, it's important, true. right? His mother that's was true. like, everyone's drunk, but we still need to get lit. And Jesus is <laughs> like, okay. We're going to we turn go. the water into wine. Let's do it. <laughs> hey, Lyra did have some wine in her story. That's true. In the beginning. Oh my God. Now that's that you right. say it. And she her was like, Roger's is... wedding. And it was right at the beginning. That was like yeah. right at the beginning too. And this yeah. is again at the beginning of Jesus. Exactly. It's important. It is. Important. It feels important. The mysteries. Lyra has her own mysteries. I might think on that more, you know, I might workshop that. That's interesting to think on. A lot of these could align. Mm-hmm. Well, finally, Will is cradling Chevalier, but Lyra says we must move. Salmachia hears the horses. An indigo hawk swoops down, and instinctively, Lyra hides, but Salmachia says, no, stand high, hold out your fist. And she does, accepting a gray-haired woman, a small Galavespian, Madame Oxentio, who tells Salmachia she's done all she needs, and now she's here. The hawk screams three times and hundreds of dragonflies bearing Galavespians come down. Oh, they get to see them. It was the best. I, I love wish Chevalier could have seen them. I'm so glad Salmachia at least got to see it. Bearing them all swiftly moving, Madame Exentiel tells them, follow her to find their demons. Lyra feels Salmachia's weight fall, knowing her strength has kept her this long. And she holds the lady gently to her heart as they stumble through mud and lightning, men charging for them, but fought off by Galavespians as they go. The battle is too quick to follow. Unfortunately, the horse people finally catch up with them, nets in hand, galloping onto them, flicking the insects into the nets. Oxentiel warns them to move, and they feel the earth move. Lyra wonders, is it horse hooves? But no. It's Yorick. He orders his bears to crush the enemy, but he's caught in a net, a steel, strong cobweb, and he's roaring and he's slashing and Will shouts for him to keep still, coming forward to cut him out. Yorick gets them to climb on and proves it's a little hard to hang on because he's wearing his armor, 
but they feel the massive power as he moves them along. The rest of the bears keep on with the good fight. The Galavespians are above, fighting as well. Madame Exential keeps watch and guides them ahead to trees in the valley where they hear guns firing shell after shell and flares firing too. Spectres are ahead as well, being fought off by ghosts, looking much more solid than Will and Lyra have ever seen them. A group of trees lies aside them where Will and Lyra realize their demons are, and if they don't reach them, they may die. So Yorick charges in, telling them to hold on! They pass witches who are heading to fight, and Will and Lyra can feel themselves nearby, excited. Spectres are still thick among them, and they would have to go directly through them, and a voice rings out saying, They're afraid of the knife! And Yorick bursts out in happiness, for it is his comrade and BFF Lee Scoresby, and I just, I just love this for them. I'm so glad there was this reunion, and it's so sweet, and it's so short, because Lee's like, I don't have time to explain how I'm here, the ghosts will take care of the specters now, keep Lyra and Will going, and Madame Exemptiel lands on Lyra's fist and tells them, go find the demons, danger's coming soon. They thank Yorick and the lady, and they push ahead, there's no time, Lee gets them through the thick, tangled shadows and tree, telling them to keep close. Finally, they reach a grove, but specters pour in. John Perry helps fight them off, and Lee points over to a large rock where two wild cats are sitting, spitting, hissing, slashing. Will thinks he could tell the difference if only he had a little more time, but he doesn't because a specter is going for them. Will leaps over a tree trunk, plunging his knife into the air to cut through. He's nauseated and his arms numb. Lyra is too, and Lee sees a specter attacking their demons. He leaps for them, wrestling them away. In goes the knife and opens another window. Lee Scoresby's ghost looked through and saw a wide, quiet prairie under a brilliant moon, so very like his own homeland that he thought he'd been blessed. Will leapt across the clearing and seized the nearest demon, while Ira scooped up the other, and even in that horrible urgency, even at that moment of utmost peril, each of them felt the same little shock of excitement. For Lyra was holding Will's demon, the nameless wildcat, and Will was carrying Pentalemon. They tore their glance away from each other's eyes. How untoward, you two. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. Little the horn. Girlhood. Wow, girlhood. We just got a little horn, little turnt, a little bit oh of gosh. intimacy going on there. I'm like, I remember my first boner. I don't. That's not. Anyways, so that they say goodbye to Lee. At this age, actually, a yeah. little earlier from what I've heard. Will just got called her, to the front voice. of class. Yeah. Let me just tell you. Woo! They touched yeah. demons. That is like they've known each other long enough. Yeah, they're at that age. I mean, they're, they're, they're would have happened curious. sooner if Will would have just fucking had one already. God. What are we talking about? No. <laughs> a demon. Whoa, a demon. Oh, a demon. Okay. Jesus. Settle down. Me. Settle. Kids are fast these days. But I don't know what settle. I'm settling as. Okay. Uh, they say goodbye to Lee. He wishes them well. And Will finally gets a great moment with his father's uh -huh. ghost. Will says, you said I was a warrior. You told me that was my nature and I shouldn't argue with it. Father, you were wrong. I fought because I had to. I can't choose my nature, but I can choose what I do. And I will choose, because now I'm free. His father's smile was full of pride and tenderness. Well done, my boy. Well done, indeed. Will couldn't see him anymore. 
He turned and climbed through after Lyra. And now that their purpose was achieved, now the children had found their demons and escaped. The dead warriors allowed their atoms to relax and drift apart at long, long last. Out of the little grove, away from the baffled specters, out of the valley, past the mighty form of his old companion, the armor-clad bear, the last little scrap of the consciousness that had been the aeronaut Lee Scoresby floated upward, just as his great balloon had done so many times. Untroubled by the flares and the bursting shells, deaf to the explosions and the shouts and cries of anger and warning and pain, conscious only of his movement upward, the last of Lee Scoresby passed through the heavy clouds and came out under the brilliant stars where the atoms of his beloved demon, Hester, were waiting for him. A stronger person would have cried during that. You know, a stronger person. I'm weak. I came close. Came close to losing it all. I didn't cry. I really didn't, though. (laughs) No, my eyes are just really pink because they're holding back a lot of dust. Actually, and dust really makes them itchy, so I'd appreciate if no one Yeah, it's springtime. Again. Pollen. Dust. Just as his great (sighs) balloon... Had done. I love that. I so, love that. are you fucking kidding me, Pullman? I didn't ask for any of this. You know what? Do you remember when he died the first time? That was fucking bad enough. Yeah, and then we do it a second, but this time it's like happy. You know, now it's, it's like cutable. he did it, and he even like, got to see what his we friend again. To. He even got to see his closure. Yorick was so happy. He was like, I mean, how is this possible? That was a mystery. Like, he never thought yeah. he'd ever see that fucker again. That was amazing. That wasn't that was serious. <laughs> what a miracle. With the atoms of his beloved demon. Just as they're rejoined with their demons, he's rejoined with his. Oh, oh, true, true, true. That's a beautiful girl. <sighs> Chloe's strong. Oh, my Chloe's God. Chloe's strong now. She did it. She did it. Um... That means that Joppery is back with Phoebe Waller Bridgerton. Oh my god. <laughs> he actually, actually though, well, I guess we don't we don't see it, right? They don't focus on it. But no, they don't give him. I was surprised that he didn't get that. They're last just bit. like, well, couldn't see him anymore. He's gone. <laughs> uh, that was an emotional bout. You know, the next couple yeah. uh, episodes aren't going to be easier. No, they're going to be harder, actually. They're actually going to get probably worse, right? So, good luck. We will be doing a couple shorter episodes. Um, <clears throat> the next episode is our last three-chapter episode, everyone. Uh, we'll be doing Morning, Marzipan, and There Is Now. That's uh, 32, 33, 34. And then after that, we have two episodes left. Over the Hills and Far Away, and Broken oh. Arrow. And then our last episode will be Dunes, <laughs> Worm, and <laughs> Botanic Garden. Uh, and that will be the end of The Amber Spyglass. It will be very depressing and beautiful, and we won't cry. And if I'm not mistaken, since we're going to be putting out another episode at the end of this month, uh we'll be soon we'll be probably you know june in it we'll be done in june so mm-hmm. summer recess summer vacay everyone yeah i don't know what we're gonna do yeah probably i guess a vacay recess we'll see we'll see we need a we need a something we're gonna need a couple weeks to cry at least yeah <laughs> uh well 
Thanks for listening. If you've been here tonight with us so far, we have a really quick discussion to cover. And again, our discussions will cover everything after chapter 31 of the Amber Spyglass and to the Books of Dust and the novellas. So if you haven't read those, hop off. We'll see you next time. We'll see you at the end of the month with our next episode. <sighs> Thanks for coming with. Yeah. And like we said, it's a short and sweet discussion because discussion, if you heard what Chloe just said, not that much left. No. But here it is. Discussion. Discussion. Clouded Mountain. Whatever it is, the force field surrounding it, it's like the labyrinth in La Belle Sauvage. It's even described uh. the exact way. Galleries, terraces, chambers, colonnades. Oh. Remember, Very Malcolm is going up the lawn, getting lost as he goes in the labyrinth that is the lawn. Uh, he looked out the tree and across the great lawns and flower beds as far as the terrace and the house beyond it. Gracious and comfortable, splendid and generous, he thought that one day he'd come here by right and be made welcome and stroll among these gardens with happy companions and feel at ease with life and death. And then when Malcolm looks the other way at the riverbank, he sees destruction, not unlike what Marisa saw, right? As she went from between the intention craft over the war and then arrived at the clouded mountain where it's beautiful with its rolling terraces. Uh, there's kind of that look where he sees desolation and broken buildings, burned houses, rubble, shanties made of plywood and tar paper. I mean, maybe he was between oh. the two worlds, seeing yeah. heaven and hell, dude. He think he or was just seeing the underworld and heaven. Maybe. The clouded like mountain. <gasps> different similar worlds or something? Because like, the shanties does sound like the suburbs of the dead, you yeah. know? Do you think he was seeing the suburbs of the dead and where the clouded mountain currently was? It could be. Or, like, it could be the clouded Aversion. mountain after. Maybe even, like, because time and, like, things were are distorted, like, until, yeah. like, Lyra and Will fix it. So it might just be what the Clouded Mountain was looking like at the time. Yeah. And, you know, Eliana, if you would watch more than one and a half episodes of Doctor Who, you would know all this. So I really just want to put that out there. I didn't say it earlier in the main episode, but if they're listening for the discussion, they deserve to hear this. You would understand all of I, it. <laughs> I think it was actually two and a half episodes, now that I think about it. Because isn't the, the Moisturize Me, that's, like, the second episode, right? Yeah, it's not the first episode, one. I think. So I've actually watched like two and a half. So there we go. I have watched more. And yet, I still don't understand. Oh. All right, what do you have? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, uh, what I have here is like a small little thing, right? Of, you know, Will saying that now he gets to choose, right? Now he is free. And he says he doesn't have to be a warrior anymore. And when he does finally choose his own path in the lantern slides, we're told that his path leads him to become a doctor. He chooses to become, again, a healer rather than a fighter. He chose that. He's free will. Which is so fucking depressing that we open with Lyra, whose whole life is just like, nothing has fucking meaning. And I hate okay. myself. <laughs> well, like, the, when whenever Will is here, right? That's much later, mm -hmm. right? Like, because yeah. he has to be at least 28 because he's got to go to, in our world, in which yeah. Will lives, he's got to go to university, then he's got to go to med school, then he's got to do his residency. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, you know, Lyra could be thriving by that point. I fucking need her to be Pullman. I really need Lyra yeah. to have some fucking something. Ugh. 
Like, I bet when Will's doing his orchard. residency, he is not thriving. Because that's no. how I hear being a resident, like, being in residency is. Yeah, it's thriving. hell. I mean, Will, you yeah. thought you saw the world of the dead, let me just say. Uh, that's true. Yeah, we don't know what he went through. I yeah, hope we do get a Will people. book. I really do. I, I think... I, think I mean, Pullman says he wants to, and that man actually, like, writes things, so. Yeah, he writes shit I don't even care. I'm like, what, you're putting out another novella? Okay. Yeah. Where's my I'm like, cool. book? I mean, oh, it's gonna come. I'm not a brat. I think it... Yeah, it'll come. I'm not worried. It'll come before It's nice long. to not be worried. It'll come before long, and that's all I have to worry about, which is nothing. Yeah. He's got duckies now. Oh. Ducklings. I'm very sad. Very sad chapters, but very beautiful yeah. chapters. Very good work, Philip Pullman. I know yeah. I've, you know, once in a while, look, I don't care what they all say about you, Phil. I think you're great. They, they is us. <laughs> they is us. <laughs> we are they. <laughs> uh, guys, thanks so much for listening in. You all are the best. I hope that you have some hot cocoa or tea or like, I don't know, a fine something after this. Have a hug. Hold your loved ones. Yeah. Hold your loved ones. Hold your... <laughs> cats if you your your animal demons yeah. if you have an animal demon go see him give him a little smoocheroo and we'll talk to you soon this month and yeah so keep up with us right follow us on social media you can find us at girls gone canon c-a-n-o-n on twitter or you can send us an email tell us what you think at girls gone canon at gmail.com and if you aren't already subscribed to us on a streaming platform near you, make sure to click follow and leave a little rate and review, right? If you have time, if you want to give us a handful of stars out there in the universe. <laughs> we are over at Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Acast, Pandora, Aud- Audible, uh, Google Play, you name I it, heart we're radio. there. iHeartMedia. <laughs> I do, I do. <laughs> And of course, you can always find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash girlsgonecanon, where uh, patrons in the $5 tier and above get bonus episodes every month. And in the Thunder tier and above, get access to our Discord. Yeah, as well as a fun of other sweet little treats that you can find along the way. So come check it out. I have been one of your hosts, Eliana. And I have been another one of your hosts, Chloe. We'll do this again later, this month. See yeah, you later. it'll be. It'll be fun. Look at all the fun we're having. We're having fun. This is fun. This is. This is I I love that. <sighs> <laughs> goodbye. Uh, goodbye. <laughs>